only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one. The uh, Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination into the impossible. Uh, podcast inside of uh, COVID quarantine day. I think this is day 26 or something like that for the state of California where Michael is. Uh, you're up in Santa Barbara, Michael. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we've been under lockdown, but we're trying to do some uh, some fun things for the audience out there. Keep everybody entertained while this lasts. Hopefully, not too much longer. I think this will be renamed, you know, the year of the Zoom or something. We'll have <laughs> to change the uh, way we orchestrate these years. But uh, uh, you know, the you've written so many books. Actually, I think you know, with I can't see your hands, but I assume you're writing another book as we're speaking because uh, <laughs> this is what your sixteen. How many books have you written? Yeah, sixteen books. Uh, if you count the you know, essay collections and, and uh, edited volumes and so on, uh, I think it's thir- uh, 12 or 13 just solo uh, regular trade books like this. Um, yeah. Well, I've, I've always wanted to be a writer. I like mm-hmm. writing. I got to the point where if I don't do it, I feel anxious in mm-hmm. the same way where, you know, I'm a longtime lifelong cyclist, yeah. competitive cyclist. If I don't ride every day or work out every day, pretty much six, seven days a week, I, I start to feel anxious. And it feels like that for me. I, I always like to have riding projects, something such that when I'm consuming content myself, which I like to do, like, like, like most of us now, particularly mm-hmm. in isolation, you know, just grinding through articles and, and, and books and so on. And, and the reason I started my own podcast was because I was reading these books anyway. Yeah. And, uh, but when when I uh, it's nice to when I'm reading something to put it somewhere like what wh- why do I care about this well this is going to be part of chapter seven in this project I'm working on about moral progress or, or, wh- or whatever you know I for me I feel better when I can fit it in somewhere like the, the reason I'm investing all this time in reading all these articles is this is going to be part of a chapter and it makes me feel like I'm using my time more efficiently. Yeah, I actually got that idea from you a long time ago, listening to your podcast, you mentioned this is your philosophy that, you know, the one way to stay engaged with other people's ideas is to read their books. And you make the point that, you know, books for, uh, there's a law of physics that not too many people know about, but new books have to come out on Tuesdays. And uh, (laughs) you brought that to my attention. And of course, yeah, all of our books come out on Tuesdays for some reason. And every Tuesday you run the Science Salon podcast and you usually nine times out of 10 have a new author or a book um, or some some work of note that has just been released. And so I took it upon myself to kind of follow your advice and reached out to a lot of people that have been guests on your podcast. And many of them have graciously agreed to be on. So in the future, we're going to have folks like Peter Diamandas and Neil Shubin and and, uh, folks that you know and and uh, have had on your show so it's a great treat to to have you i was on your show last year science salon that was a great treat for me we talked for over an hour and a half i think it was and uh, really exposed you uh, me to you uh, to the way that you have a unique style of really as an intellectual. I think of you as a public intellectual. Uh, you're reputed to be a member of some certain uh, three-letter acronym <laughs> that I'm not going to mention. Uh, but what I love about you is that you can do it all. You're kind of very peripatetic. You you do everything from hard science, where you and I have corresponded a lot, uh, down to the political, down to you know social uh, matters and so forth, psychology, which I have no expertise in other than uh, armchair psychotherapy that uh, is now being conducted over Zoom, like most things. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, you know, one one question just before we get into the meat of the book, we're going to talk a lot about Michael's fa- fabulous new book, "Giving the Devil His Due," and I want to get uh, all the juicy details. I, I read more than half of the book uh, in one sitting. It was just uh, really gripping, and I'm a subscriber to Skeptic Magazine. Um, for a long time. But before I do that, I just wanted to circle back to this podcast reading. Um, I've heard it said that uh, sometimes though, a reading addiction, it can be addictive. Uh, sometimes it can be used as a way to forestall one's own creativity as a writer. In other words, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll start writing my sequel to uh, losing the Nobel Prize uh, once I'm done interviewing Michael and Peter and Neil and, and reading Olivia. 27 more articles online today. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. Oh, I do that all the time. It's a great procrastination. You know, I got to just read one more article. I'm sure this is important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the uh, the the you know knowledge base from which to reference in the book just keeps growing unavoidably. Well, and uh, you know the current age we live in with the internet uh, is so accessible. Uh, at any given time, I'll have like a dozen windows open. I know. You know, just like in the first hour of the morning, it's like I got to read this, I got to read this, I'm going to come back to this, and you know, half the time I never get to all of them. Yeah. And it, it, at some point, you do have to have some discipline. Like, okay, I got to stop reading and start working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to actually get something done. And, so how but do you the do thing it? is, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of high quality content. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of these articles I read, they're great, beautifully written, you know, uh, and well researched and from, you know, a dozen different sources. And, and it's like, wow, the, you know, this is a big improvement over in, in the, uh, the amount of diversity of voices we have now. Because yeah. the way, you know, before the internet, you know, there, there was so many filters, you know, peer-reviewed journals mm-hmm. have filters and uh, university presses have filters. Even trade houses have filters, if nothing else, economic filters. You know, they, yeah. only, they can only publish, you know, a couple dozen books, titles a year. Uh, so they have to be pretty selective. So most people don't get a voice. Right. Well, that's all changed. Everybody yeah. has a voice. Now there's a lot of crap out there, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of really good writers. I'm stunned. Yeah. As a lifelong writer myself, how good, what uh, the quality of so much writing is. Yeah. And also the instruction. I want to get into the kind of art of pedagogy because you are also an instructor. Let me, let me go through your bio while, while we're starting yeah. uh, here, because I, I don't want to miss any, any of the, uh, you know, kind of basic uh, facts on the ground before we get started. So I'm going to say uh, what I have received from, from you and your, uh, and your PR firms and, and uh, publisher, that Dr. Michael Sherman. Yes, that's right. You've got a crew. You've got a whole Zoom crew. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Michael Shermer is a presidential fellow at Chapman University the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, and for 18 years was a monthly columnist for Scientific American. He's the author of several New York Times bestselling books, including Heavens on Earth, The Moral Arc, The Believing Brain, and Why People Believe Weird Things, as well as 12 other books, 13 other books, plus the one that he's writing secretly while his hands are moving. Uh, His two (laughs) TED Talks uh, have been viewed over 9 million times. I I gotta think that's over 10 million by now. And they were voted in the top 100 of the more than 2,000 TED Talks that exist. Dr. Sherman received his BA in psychology from Pepperdine, his MA in experimental psychology from California State University, Fullerton, and his PhD in the history of science from Claremont Graduate University. He has a a thriving website. Uh, You can connect to him there on michaelshermer.com. You can also find him prolifically posting on Twitter, tweeting away on Twitter at Michael Shermer, on Facebook at Michael Brandt Shermer. And uh, the thing that they left out is sort of... uh, you know, one of the things we're touching upon are some of the things you do outside uh, of your work. You're a prolific cyclist. You were a pro- basically a professional cyclist in some sense. I mean, you competed in a race across America. And one of the first times I ever came across you 
was in a book uh, called uh, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Us. Mm. And you're featured extensively in that book. And it's all about sort of the theory and, and psychology behind cognitive dissonances and how they uh, are really in, insidious and how they permeate fields ranging from psychology to detective work by police to, to scientists in the physical sciences like myself. And in that book, you were talking about an event that really is the intersection. I think it's the kind of the ultimate Shermer moment. And I wanted you to maybe relate that really quickly to the audience because you, you've shared it with me in person. But Oh, the alien this, abduction experience? Yes. Yeah, oh, so, yeah. So you're one of the few people I've met that has been abducted by aliens. Been, uh, how that, how that I, saw the mother, I saw the mothership. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. <laughs> no, I actually... I use that story really to talk about uh, abductees who say, you know, I really believe that, you know, this happened to me. And I say, I believe you believe it. I, in, in other words, I believe it's a real experience people are having. They, they are not, for the most part, just making up these crazy stories about UFOs and aliens to sell books. Maybe some do. But I, I think most of them, you know, really believe this is the experience they've had. That book, by the way, Mistakes Were Made, but not by me, is by Carol Tavers. Great book. I use it in my um, Chapman University course, Skepticism 101. Really effective at, uh, at sort of explaining how deceptive our beliefs or how mis misguided our beliefs can become based on these personal experiences that people had. In my case, it was part of this race across America, which is a 3,000-mile nonstop transcontinental bike race from L.A. to New York. Different starting finish points now but um but in 1982 when he did this we went la to new york and and i finished third and i i broke the transcontinental record and in 83 we decided to do it again we had corporate sponsors and abc why world of sports was filming it so it's like okay i'm just going to do this for a while and because there weren't any teaching jobs uh there was you know sort of a freeze on hiring after prop 13 passed in california so uh you know i i wasn't going to be a a full-time professor. So I thought I'll just be a full-time bike racer. And, you know, I'm in my twenties, you know, not married, no kids, no house, you know, you're free to do that sort of thing. So I did. So I decided in 1983, I was going to see if I could ride all the way across the country without sleeping at all. And cause I'd read some research on sleep deprivation and that, that there was some kid who was like 21 who went 11 days without sleep at UCLA. I thought, okay, you know, for 10 days across the country, I can do that. It, well, I couldn't. <laughs> you know, I made it from the Santa Monica Pier to into Nebraska. And uh, that was about 83 straight hours. And I just started hallucinating like crazy. Basically, it was early in the morning, and you know, early, 4 a.m., something like this. So I'm kind of wobbling down the side of the road about six miles an hour in my bike. And, and every, every cyclist in this race has a support crew that follows behind them, like a minivan and then a motorhome and, and, a, and, a, and a support team. So you don't have to stop and go into hotels and, and restaurants and things like that. It's just all on the fly. That's how they can do it so quickly. Anyway, so, uh, but at that moment, I just had this, apparently had this flashback to a, a childhood television show called The Invaders starring Roy Thinnis, where these aliens were invading Earth, but they were taking over the bodies of humans and looked just like them. And so this is kind of a body snatchers kind of uh, theme. And, uh, but, but, but in the show, they could tell that they were aliens because they had a stiff little finger, which is really weird because, you know, if aliens could traverse the vast distances of interstellar space and figure out genetic engineering and clone humans, but it's really their, their intelligence inside. So, but they couldn't figure out the tendons and the little finger. I mean, anyway, crazy. But, uh, but that's what I thought on the side of the road that my support team were these aliens that looked just like the people I know, but I knew 
that they were actually these body snatcher aliens. And then they're trying to get me into the UFO, which is just my motorhome. And uh, and apparently this conversation went on for some time where they're going, come on, Shermer, it's, it's break time. You got to take a, take a nap. And I'm like, oh, no. And I'm quizzing them. Like my, my girlfriend was on the crew. I was you know, quizzing her about personal details of our relationship. And the aliens knew all this. I was really <laughs> impressed with this. Anyway, so uh, then I took a 90-minute nap and, and you know, snapped out of it. And there's actually footage. If you type in Michael Shermer, alien abduction, you'll see uh, Eric Hyden, uh, the Olympic skater who was a color commentator for Wide World of Sports, interviewing me on, and I'm crossing the Mississippi Bridge. It was midnight, six and a half hours after Lon Haldeman's crossing, when Michael Shermer reached the Mississippi. What Diana and I hadn't known when we spoke of a close race earlier was that Shermer was slowing down. As he told Eric Hyden there on the bridge, he was wasted. Still feel pretty mentally alert? No. <laughs> That's why I gotta get some sleep tonight. That's a very strange thing happened to me last night. I mean, like, psychotic type experience. Such as? Uh, thinking my crew was aliens from another planet trying to capture me. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> that's what I thought. He was still in second place, but he was floundering. But the point of that story really is that, uh, first of all, personal experiences can be so powerful that they overwhelm uh, you know, rationality. That is, I, I meet a lot of people who um, claim, you know, I, I, I'm on board with you about the psychics and ESP. I know that's all bullshit and all that. So I'm a skeptic too. I love science, but I had this incredible experience. Let me tell you about it. And they'll tell me about it. And they go, so I just think there might be something to this because this one thing that happened to me. And like, okay, I, that's the power of right. experience. Like even Alexander, uh, he wrote that book, Proof of Heaven. Yes. You know, he proof. <laughs> That's a strong word in science, right. proof. Not evidence, right. Uh, I mean, social scientists never use that word. Maybe you guys do in the physics, you know, proof. Well, uh, he went there, you know. Okay, so, when you you know, you drill down in the story. You know, he had a, uh, you know, a, a, a brain brain virus, and they put him in a induced coma because his brain was swelling anyway. They started to bring him out, and he had this fantastic hallucination that he thinks, you know, he went to heaven. Right. Now, he knows, you know, he's a, neuro, he's a neurologist. He knows more about the brain than I do. He knows everything I know about near-death experiences and trauma, and this and that, but it happened to him. Mm. And that's what made it different. That's very powerful, those experiences that are personal. And actually, um, there's there's something to be said for personal experiences. In the end of this book, Giving the Devil is Due, now out by Michael Shermer, um, there's wonderful recollections of your, um, and, and rather unvarnished so, of your personal interactions, your personal experiences with people that have taken on a mythological stance in society, ranging from Richard Dawkins uh, to the late, great Christopher Hitchens. And um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, and Jordan Peterson, of course, uh, who you've interacted with as well. And I think, um, I think I want to take this opportunity to kind of step back for a second and, and focus on, on, on the book itself. And, and we'll get to those uh, interesting intellectuals as we proceed. Uh, but, uh, but I first want to start with the, with the title of the book and actually the cover of the book. So I, unlike what the uh, common colloquial <laughs> advice is, uh, I always judge books by the cover. In fact, uh, I almost exclusively will not be interested in a book if I don't like the cover. And on the cover, we have a quote from another than Richard Dawkins. You may disagree with Michael Shermer, but you'd better have a good reason and you'll have your work cut out finding it. Now, 
this book, I mean, it's interesting that he talks about disagreeing with you. This book is not really a polemic of sorts. It's really sort of a compendium of, of, of your greatest hits sort of updated for, uh, you know, updated and brought, brought to, you know, modernity. Some of them take place quite, quite a long time ago. And really in a cohesive source, it's sort of an autobiography of you in a sense, although I hope you will someday write a proper autobiography because I think that would be warranted. Um, I'm going to write an uh, unauthorized autobiography. Yeah, and you could be like uh, Charles Barkley, who uh, reportedly said once that he was missed, he was uh, he was taken out of context and they said it was your autobiography. <laughs> he said, That's I funny. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard that one. I was misquoted. It was you who said it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the unauthorized autobiography. I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, that, so giving the devil is due. So yeah. Uh, so the and, title really is is yeah. you know it comes from this um, this play, A Man for All Seasons. Uh, you know this uh, sort of collision between Thomas More and, and King Henry the Eighth over his divorce from Catherine of Aragon and his divorce from the Catholic Church and so forth. Anyway, uh, in the play is defending the law and that, you know, we need laws that are fair and just for everybody. And his, uh, you know, opponent is saying, well, we got to cut down the laws to get after the devil, you know, the, the bad guys. And so he res- report, he responds to this like, well, but then when the laws are all cut down and they, and it turn the power turns on you, where are you going to go? You know, you have no protection. So we have to give the devil his due for our own safety's sake. And uh, in my case, my devils are, who are who is the devil? It's anyone who you disagree with, who di- who disagrees with you, who thinks differently from you. You know, he- you know, free speech is for people that we don't like. That's right. what the First Amendment is for. People that you know are saying things we don't want to hear. That's that, that's the whole reason for it. It's not to protect people we agree with. So the devil is really just anybody that's different from you, disagrees with you, and so on. And the reason we have to give them their due, give them their free speech, is because. Um, Ultimately, if we if we pass censorship laws, then those laws could be used against us when we're in the minority, when we're uh, out, out uh, outside in the, of the window looking in, wanting to have a voice. Mm. And uh, you know that you know. So I, I give some uh, brief history of of the First Amendment in the introductions, re- really starting with the Shank case in 1919 when Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, wrote his uh, official. Um, position statement the you know the the uh, in which he said uh, you know shouting fire in a crowded theater would be an example of a clear and present danger that congress is um you know has a right to censor because this could lead to harm well what what was this clear and present danger at the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater in 1919 well it was this guy shank who was a socialist in philadelphia who was handing out flyers to young men who were of draft age yeah, as america was about to enter the great war mm-hmm. so i mean to our ears it's like wait you're protesting the draft and this is considered to be you know so dangerous we have to censor it yeah, right. yeah. and uh, and so the moment that this is the problem the moment you you make that argument and the argument could be made yeah this could lead to this 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 and before you know it, we don't have an army so we can't defend ourselves so in the national interest we have to you know protect people from hearing criticisms of the draft okay the problem with that is that that you know that that, that anybody's speech could be justified as needing to be censored because you could make an argument for almost anything that this is somehow going to harm the nation or some particular group or me in particular or, or whatever. And, um, you know, so th- th- as I say, one man's hate speech is another man's free speech. Uh, and that in the, uh, on the eve of the civil war, a lot of pro slavery proponents argued that 
abolitionist speech, that is Northerners coming down to Southern states or sending their literature, you know, or publishing magazine articles and so on, promoting the abolition of slavery was considered hate speech. Now, they didn't use that phrase, hate speech. Right. But, they, but the argument that they made was this could lead to slave revolts because if the slaves get word of these arguments, they may not like being slaves anymore. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then what's going to happen? They're going to start killing the white people. And then, you know, so we have to protect our citizens from hearing this abolitionist speech. Wow. And same thing happened during the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King. The reason he went to the South is because he targeted the most racist cities he could find mm. so that it would get media attention, so that it could get it challenged in the law mm. and ultimately the Supreme Court. And, uh, and, and so people then made the argument, you know, this, this guy is, I mean, he's not as, as bad as Malcolm X, but this kind of stuff he's saying could lead to uh, riots, inner city riots, and that leads to violence. Therefore, he should be censored. So it's, uh, to our ears, you know, today and in 2020, you know, using the N-word or ca calling women this or Jews that or whatever, mm -hmm. that's hateful and we shouldn't do it. Well, I, I agree, you know, don't be a dick. You shouldn't say things like that, right? But the moment you pass a law that says, okay, we are not going to censor the kinds of things that, you know, that, that challenge gender identity or whatever the popular thing is. Right. Now. You know, in 20 years, 50 years, you, you know, those laws are still on the books. You yeah. Know? And then they get applied to something else we can't even think of. So as a general principle, uh, I'm a pretty much a free speech fundamentalist. Yeah, you're, you're sort of remarkable because you do. Um, <clears throat> it was once said of, uh, by uh, our mutual friend, Sir Roger Penrose, about, uh, about Stephen Hawking, that, you know, you, it was no matter what you believed, you would, you're in agreement with Stephen Hawking because he would often take opposite sides of the same position. And I see you as sort of, you know, this radical, extreme libertarian, you know, that you're, you, are, you don't cleave to either political party. And I actually pride myself in this podcast. I always say, you know, as an astronomer, the reason that people love astronomy is that there's no Republican constellation or Democrat <laughs> comet over there. Uh, and so it's apolitical uh, by nature. You can talk about funding and, yeah, maybe some climate stuff here and there. But um, in astronomy per se – it's mostly liberated from that. And that's what I like about it. So I don't want to talk too much about politics, except to say that this book, like many of your other books, the title is sort of a double entendre. And I, I look at the at the moral arc and I think about what you were just saying with regard to, you know, the shifting uh, illegal zeitgeist of what constitutes speech and, and harm and, and danger, et cetera. And you make the point in the book, you know, that Jordan Peterson, this famous case in Canada, well, his, um, his you know, right to free speech isn't as uh, guarded, perhaps, as it is in America. And he's very controversial, of course. But he did, you know, free speech laws, when they're enacted, they're, they come with the full backing of a government, which you point out could be physically punishable. I mean, you could actually get uh, punished at the end of a gun for speech and perhaps even for thought. And I wonder, you've given so many talks at campuses, you're a professor, you teach on college campuses. How, have you seen the declination or uh, decline rather of of the tolerance and freedom of speech uh, at the places where freedom of speech used to be synonymous with uh, UC yeah. Berkeley and other places? Can you comment on that? And that, that'll be the only uh, political sort of campus politics. Well, Although I, I want to talk about tenure with you. <laughs> it's okay to talk about politics. I mean, in, in a way, th that's where the free speech is most applicable uh, mm. because um, you guys will uh, hash out your, your differences in some astronomical theory in the journals and conferences and books. 
and debates and so on. And, and it kind of gets settled in the long run. Because I remember when I was uh, an, uh, started college in 72, the Big Bang Theory had just kind of won out over the steady state theory. And, and that's when I first noticed, like, so there is kind of a sense of progress. Like we have these different theories, but at some point it gets settled. Like that's the right one. In politics, it's so messy and complicated that there may not be a right answer, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, what's the right tax rate? Well, <laughs> you know, in, in abortion, very complicated. Guns, right. very complicated. So if any place you need sort of open debate and disputation, everybody gets their position out on the table. So we kind of see where it all stands. And, and uh, so the problem in Canada, like within France, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and a few other countries, Holocaust denial, for example, is illegal. In yes. Canada, it's illegal under the uh, this sort of hate speech umbrella. That that is speech that could incite people to commit violence against a particular group. In this yes. case, the Jews. So, uh, so amazingly, it's actually illegal. You could be arrested for giving a lecture saying, "I don't think six million people died." Now, the analogy I make to that is: let's say I'm a historian of Native American history in, in the United States, and we want to know how many people. Native Americans died at the hands of Europeans since 1492. Okay, well, this is an actual uh, field of, of study. You know, how many people were here before, you know, when, when in 1492? Well, we don't know, but, you know, 90 million, 70 million, 50 million, it's debatable. And, and then how many died by disease versus by, uh, you know, guns and, and, and steel and, and guns, germs, and steel sense of Jared Diamond's book title. And, and, and that's disputed. And, but let's say it's 50 million. Mm -hmm. But but now let's say I publish a, a journal article or a book in which I say, you know what? I don't think so. I think it was more like 10 million. Am I a, mm -hmm. am I a Holocaust denier right. to be arrested mm -hmm. for giving my argument? Okay. Now, that said, you know, most of the Holocaust deniers I've met, you know, they're, they're pretty fringy and they probably are mostly anti-Semitic. Yeah. You know, but that, that aside... Um, they have arguments, and if we, if you can't counter their arguments, if your counter to their argument on sp some specific thing about Auschwitz is, well, you're a Nazi, that's not a counter. That's mm -hmm. not a counter argument. And and so, if anything, the, you know, the, under the principle, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. You know, I, I I go the opposite direction. Let them have their say. Let's let's publish it. You know, here in the, we did that in Skeptic. Here are the you know 15 things that Holocaust revisionists, as they like to be called, this is their arguments. These are their best arguments, and here's why they're wrong. We did the same thing with creationists, climate deniers, and so on. And uh, ultimately, I like to think anyway, as in, as in your science, it gets kind of settled at some point. It's debatable this or that, but then we kind of get a refined argument. And anyone that's not going along with it. It, they're like the handful of people that still claim the Big Bang didn't happen. I, I know there's these Big Bang the skeptics. Flat. Right. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, it's flat or whatever. It's like, okay, we don't have to worry about them because, uh, you know, they're, they're so fringy. But the way we got there was through examining their claims. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I apply that to everywhere. And as I wrote in the book, I, I actually wrote a letter in defense of David Irving to the judge in his trial in Austria, yeah. mm -hmm. mainly because it was so outrageous. He, this is not even a speech crime. This was a thought crime. He got arrested yeah. at the airport. He flew from <laughs> uh, London to uh, Vienna. And as they scanned his passport, it came up. It was flagged as one of these, you know, sort of dangerous characters. And, and he was just going to give a speech about the Second World War. Now, I know his angle, the Second World, you know, Hitler was a pretty good guy and he didn't know right. about some of the bad stuff. And so, okay, this is all bullshit. Yeah. But the fact that, that he gets arrested for just thinking a thought. 
because he hadn't given a speech. He was just right. thinking about giving a speech. So are we talking about an Orwellian thought crime? Yes, that's what we're talking about. So, you know, Jordan's point there with that Bill C-16 in Canada, it, it sounds good from a kind of a liberal perspective of the moral arc and all that stuff. Yeah, we should we should t- call people by the names they want to be called. Okay, fine. And I tell a little story in the book about when I was in college at Pepperdine, one, one semester my roommate was a guy named Dwayne. I, I'd known him from high school. He, he hated his name. All right. So he changed his name to D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan. you know, the fourth Marsketeer. <laughs> Eventually he shortened it to Dar, and I, I still talk to him, and we call him Dar. And he said, you know, I, I'd like you to call me this. We're like, what? really d'artagnan and and he got his driver's license changed and the whole thing and we're like okay we'll do it but you know just a friend one-on-one asking you you know please call me this is one thing and you know don't be a dick just do it you know be a nice person okay but then going to the government to say we want you to force that guy to call you that that's different and i supported you know jordan's position on that to the extent that that's the case but something like a gender pronoun not used by say a government agency or a university department or a corporation would end up with some kind of trial or, or some sort of conviction that I, I can't speak to. But the, right. in principle, he's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the right, as you say, the devil is someone that you have potential not to agree with on on everything or maybe on any one thing. But uh, that person is due the sort of courtesy that you'd like extended to yourself. So sort of a variant of the silver rule, um, if not mm-hmm. the golden mm-hmm. rule. Um, let me just uh, take a break and ask you, what is the meaning? The cover is really cool. It has sort of this very three-dimensional shape to it. It actually looks three-dimensional <laughs> in the back. Uh, yeah. Actually, the covers behind you look even more three-dimensional. So yeah. what is the meaning? I, I, I can see the pawn. I can see the devil. Uh, but what's the, what's the symbolism going on there, Michael? Uh, well, the, uh, uh, we, we went through a couple of cover choices and you know how this works yeah and uh uh, uh oh what's that they decline it sorry yeah actually let me just turn off my phone where we're talking so the um the symbolism is is of course there's the thing that you see you know the person and then there's you know maybe behind that they're they're secretly the devil and you know it's not these people we have to give the the the, you know the rights to it's 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 the shadow ones the you know the ones that 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 you know have the horns and so on at least we think they have the horns Right. right you know and if you look at the long history of free speech you know it's it's been a battle pretty much for the last several thousand years. And the reason is because governments and autocrats and theocrats, they don't want to, to give people the opportunity to dissent because dissenters cause friction or fractions in power structures, which is the whole point of having a free press is, uh, is to allow dissent. And we now know from studies of the Nazi era that, you know, they never had a majority, of course, when they were elected in 1933, they were elected, Mm -hmm. they were elected, but it was a minority position. Okay, fine. That happens in a lot of elections. And like an Angela Merkel always has to make these coalitions with different parties because in Germany, there's so many different parties, but the question was, is I've always pursued is how do you get, um, how do you convert an entire group of people, educated, cultured, you know, the land of Beethoven and Goethe, you know, intelligent people to become Nazis? And, and mm-hmm. the answer appears to be, well, they didn't. Most of them didn't go along with the Nazi ideology. Now, there was rampant anti-Semitism, but there was anti-Semitism throughout uh, most European countries. It, it wasn't necessarily worse in Germany than, than say, France or Poland particularly Russia, um, you know, this Hitler's willing executioners, as Daniel Goldberg, um, Goldhagen called his book. There was a lot of them around. Yeah. But um, the 
the general population, while they may not have liked Jews, they were not exterminationists in their ideologies and beliefs. Right. So I, I've gotten to the point where now I, I'm willing to say no Hitler, no Holocaust, and probably even no Hitler, no World War II. Yeah. That, you know, the people weren't that bad. Um, and so, uh, but how did they maintain power for so long? Two things. One, pluralistic ignorance, where every the spiral of silence, where everybody thinks everybody else thinks something. Yep. In, in fact, they don't. Well, why don't they know that they, the others don't? Because the censorship of dissenters who would say, the emperor has no clothes. Did, did you notice that? He's naked. <laughs> <laughs> and if nobody can say that, then you know everybody you know falls into this si- spiral of silence. And that's why autocrats want to uh, you know jail and censor jail and prison, whatever, the Gulag Archipelago and the KL concentration system in germany and so on north korea now and and so on so you know us free speech fundamentalists we you know we want to push back the moment any uh government starts to go down that road because they always do almost like it's a law of nature like one of your physical laws that yeah this is what governments do so you know we didn't know about uh what our own government was doing even democrats like kennedy and, and johnson until the pentagon papers right you know, and, and now with WikiLeaks, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- th- a lot of this crazy stuff, it started with Bush at the Homeland Security and all that. But 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 Obama was just as bad mm-hmm. as Bush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's almost like, you know, you get in there and they go, OK, here's what's really going on. Oh, well, we got to silence these people. We got to do this. We got to do that. All right. So, wow. so. Right. So on the eve of the release of Giving the Devil is Due, we're in April, early April of 2020. We're both in California and we're under a form of self-isolation and uh, so-called sheltering in place. Not not a quarantine per se and not a true lockdown, but we're uh, you know, demanded at some to some level, you know, not even to go to the beach and uh, walk on uh, and nature trails and so forth. It's really unprecedented in my lifetime. And I'm sure in your lifetime, too, we're not that yeah. much different yeah. in age. Yeah. But uh, but one of the things you know, initially I reacted kind of cynically at it when they, it was, it was, uh, the governor ordered that this, and I should speak carefully because he is my boss after all, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Governor Newsom, the wise and, and brilliant Governor Newsom, you know, didn't make this, uh, edict apply to the press. And I was like, ah, that's, you know, he's just, you know, taking care of this fawning press that, you know, we all love. And I've got many friends that are in, in the newspaper business. Uh, but, uh, but then I, I, I came to immediately realize that it, just as you say, this media is so critical to the, to the reportage of truth and to checking on power. But I want to get your uh, impression. Now we have the sort of micro media, which uh, uh, are these, uh, you know, bloggers and twi- Twitter, you know, um, uh, you know, people, people on Twitter and Facebook, etc., that can really overwhelm and sort of storms of, of, uh, of uh, attrition, wars of attrition through their, um, you know, a voice their opinions. And it could be something I agree with. It could be something I don't agree with. I mean, obviously, there are certain really abhorrent viewpoints on Twitter and, and elsewhere. Um, but, but there is also this potential now, not for governments to really police speech, but really this so-called cancel culture that you talk about a little bit in the book and how anathema that is to the free, you know, d- uh, dissemination of information. So I wonder if you can talk about that. And wh- why is it so prevalent on college campuses? Why do you get canceled from invitations or, or pe- people like our mutual friend, Ben Shapiro, and, and, um, and other people that you've had on your show and, and corresponded with, like Jordan Peterson, that, you know, I don't know personally, but, but uh, why, why is this more prevalent on campus than, say, by governments? You know, in, in the yeah. past, it would be some government uh, suppressing Ben Shapiro or, you know, someone else. Right, or even decades you. 
ago, it was conservatives that were yeah. more in favor of censorship Absolutely. and liberals that were champions of yeah. free speech. And I mean, the ACLU has always been considered kind of a liberal, yes. left-leaning organization. And um, okay, so um, there's different ideas, you know, floating around about this. I have a, a chapter in the book um, called What Went Wrong. You know, I, I think there's several things. First, um, you know, if we trace it back to the civil rights movement that begins with uh, sense, being sensitive to speech, well, because words matter and words can be hurtful. And you know, just pick the most obvious one using the N word. Yeah. You know, I won't do it. Uh, I, I don't even want to do it in print. Uh, I, I don't even want to say the word. You know, and and I'm and I'm an okay baby boomer. I'm, I you know, I'm 65, and you know, so we've all been inculcated into this that, that language is harmful and we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so, from there, you go. Well, what other words? You know, should we not be using besides the N word? Well, you shouldn't call women the C word and and mm-hmm. and, and call Jews kikes and and on and on. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. You know, and that starts expanding. Now, in in a in a good way, we all shift our language um, in the way we speak to each other informally. You know, television scripts, movie scripts, what the what the characters in movies and films and novels say, that's all changed. You can track when a novel was written or when a movie was done, you know, just, just down to the decade, sometimes even the year, based on the kind of words that are used to talk about women, blacks, and Jews, for example. Mm-hmm. So all that is good. But then the moment you you, you introduce like affirmative action. laws and 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 anti-discrimination laws and so on then it's easy to suck into that the words that people use and pretty soon you're policing language and then it becomes and then we got to punish the the transgressors and so this happened over many decades i saw it happening when i was you know in a college student and then in the 80s when i started being a professor and teaching and i saw the speech codes you know becoming broader you know sort of concept creep you know the category gets bigger right things that you know that, that that can't be said or shouldn't be said and then the enforcement levers not just like say government anti-speech codes those are harder to get past but the the kind of norming of silencing leads people to self-censor mm. so while you know like at chapman university uh where i teach you know, if I ask students, how many of you self-censor on a lot of these sensitive subjects about, you know, race and gender and so on, every hand goes up. They, you know, yeah. they're all afraid to say what they really think. And and this is more dangerous than a law that you can pinpoint, go, that that law is unconstitutional. We need to overturn that law. Let's have a, a, a court case about it. That you can kind of, is more tangible, but this sort of subtle bottom-up, you know, no one wants to say anything because they're afraid because the norms have changed. That's what's more dangerous. And, uh, so, you know, I, and then there's a, a few other factors that, uh, again, this, this totally reasonable liberal idea of diversity is good. I agree. Diversity is good. And I'd like to see more black faces and more women and more Jews and more, more Hispanics and so on. This is all good. But, but then when you start to enforce it and you leave out viewpoint diversity, you know, maybe we need some more conservatives in our department. What? <laughs> uh, you know, right. it's like, okay, so maybe you're not that in favor of all kinds of diversity and, and, and so on. So that was another factor uh, leading to that. And, and I think, um, you know, the media has kind of gone along with that. The academy has gone along with it. And now all those college students in the 60s and 70s, they're, you know, tenured professors now, they're deans, they're presidents of universities, they're making policy. And you could see that from that historical tra- trajectory, there was a kind of a logic to it. But 
you know, it still, I think, just went went too far. Yeah. Yeah. And then it is sort of, uh, you know, worrisome to me because I you know, have come to feel that universities are these real uh, citadels of, 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 you know, truth and, 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 of course, in the in the hard sciences, uh, there's a little bit of a you know different sort of standard as you were talking earlier. Is there proof? No, we don't really talk about proof. We mainly talk about disproof, and maybe some of that carries over to the social sciences because you you're entitled to your viewpoint, I'm entitled to my viewpoint. You can't prove either one, and maybe I could dispute yours. And uh, of course, the famous quote, you know, uh, that uh, you know I I may disagree with you, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it. Mm-hmm. So you know, in this book, you do take uh, you know I write down I always write imaginary blurbs uh you know <laughs> as if you'd okay. ever asked me to write you a blurb but oh but, but, you're you're next you're next on the <laughs> for the next book i hope so uh but uh, i call you the conductor in the orchestra of cognitive dissonance that really makes the the melody uh shine so you really have this unique hmm. ability to take to really see with with care you know once i was talking to a friend uh about you and your work before i went on your show and he was uh you know he was saying you know michael just sees everything through these lenses and i feel like you see that through the lens of exactly, you know, you look at polarization, which not the kind that I study in the light from the ancient universe, but but your kind, you know, the, where we talk about how ideas can be uh, so disjoint, and and yet we should have a sense of compassion. And I feel that you uh, you really exemplify that. And I should also point out that you made your lectures uh, for your Chapman course; they're available on YouTube on, on your channel. And I urge people to look at that to see that compassion, as as our mutual friend uh, Heather McDonald says, you know, teaching is an act of love. Love. And I think you can't you can't convince somebody of a point. You can't teach somebody a point. Not 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 has to be platonic, obviously. But uh, but you can't convince something of something if you hate them. If if you know that you have this dis displeasure for somebody, and what makes uh, what makes communication and teaching and learning possible is a sense of safety. So in the book, you talk about and you kind of uh, bring down your own version of how I like to say you know how you would govern. Uh, the world almost uh, not not governed planet Earth though govern a different world a oh, world, Mars yeah uh, <laughs> yeah that that we experience uh, from a distance uh, but it's looking more and more attractive although I do joke uh, recently on on Twitter I tweeted about how do you remember back in 2013 there was this there was this company that was selling rides to Mars and it was going to be a you know a one way trip and the voyage itself in complete isolation would be you know two years per- perhaps just based on the limits of space travel and there were uh, over 10,000 people signed up. My, my friend Elizabeth Landau did a, did a, a nice piece on this in CNN uh, for CNN. And she said that 10,000 people paid like 40 or 50 bucks to get on this list. And then the company went out of business or whatever. But I'm wondering, you know, how many people nowadays do you think would sign up for that kind of isolation? And, and what is it about the mind that, you know, you really don't know what you have until it's gone? And, and I, I worry about that for, you know, having this discourse. But let, let's talk about the astronomical. Let's talk about governing Mars. So there's a famous exchange about two years ago between you and Elon Musk. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. About well, how just, one would like, govern Mars. I'll, I'll just say this. The title of the yeah. chapter is Chapter 14, Governing Mars, Lessons from yeah. the Red Planet from Experiments Governing the Blue Planet. Yeah, so, um, well, he was, you know, tweeting about this as Elon is wont to do. And uh, I find him such an inspirational figure of our time to even think about doing this. Like, you know, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to go to Mars. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how things, big things happen. It starts with an idea. Okay, fine. 
But but in in my world, okay, I, I don't I don't work in the physical sciences, so I don't know how to get there by rockets or whatever, right. and what kind of structure we need and how to grow food there, potatoes or, or whatever. But you know, in terms of a social structure, a moral you know a moral system, some you know, I've always been curious as a sci-fi scenario. You know, if if you know if you sent a bunch of atheists to Mars and came back centuries later, would they all have something like religion and some belief in a god, something like that? Or and or if you just sent people that knew nothing about politics, would they end up with something like a democracy, or they knew nothing about economics? Would they end up with something like a, a regulated uh, free market economy? You know, something like that. You know, what I'm after there is you know deeper principles of human nature that emerge no matter what kind of social situation you have. So then I started thinking, well, what kind of government would we set up? Now, right. possible Elon will send his social engineers up there and they'll think of something no one has ever thought of before. And okay. <laughs> that that would be great then we could we could we could transport it back to earth like hey you guys should try this here it works it works on mars it works on mars with 20 people yeah well try it with 20 million <laughs> you know and, and therein lies the problem is that, you know you, you can have a a direct democracy with you know with a couple dozen people maybe in like a university department where everybody votes on something um and you all know each other but the problem is is you know the complications multiply you know geometrically as the numbers population numbers go up and so the potential for conflict and because of human diversity of different interests and needs there is no one system there is no utopia and it's a dangerous idea to think we can design the perfect society there is no perfect society yes you know so you have to have an open-ended experimental system so i'm inspired by science in this sense that sagan makes this point in his demon haunted world but but uh, but but jefferson did too it's all experiments from what you can collect data mm-hmm. so let's say you have 50 different states with 50 50 different constitutions and they and they have 50 different say gun control regulations well those are experiments now we can look at and try to you know control intervening variables and see what the effects of say gun control uh, laws are or are not mm-hmm. and now this is complicated and hard and different social scientists have different um conclusions from the same data set and some of it's ideologically driven others are not but the point is that these are experiments so if you started off with a direct democracy on mars with you know say a dozen astronauts there you know what happens when it gets to you know a hundred dozen or you know a thousand a hundred thousand or a million people you know then then you i contend you're going to end up with something like a representative democracy a constitutional republic like we have because We've been running these experiments on Earth for thousands of years, and many experiments have been tried. Most fail. You know, the theocracies, autocracies, dictatorships, various, uh, you know, uh, command economies, you know, they just don't work. And it's not that our system is perfect, you know, it's just, but but it, it works better than some of these others. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they, the idea there is let's look around to see what has worked here and take it with us to Mars, or at, le- at least to start. Now, it turns out when I was researching, there's other people like Charles Cockell, the, 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 the chemist, biologist, no, he's a physicist, I think, mm-hmm. in England has, you know, written quite a bit about this, uh, you know, and, and that it, it could be, you know, having multiple sources of oxygen and water and food, because we have to remember that it's the, the, the analog of Europeans coming to North America doesn't work because right. they had they had air, they had right. water, they had <laughs> right. food on the hoof and in right. the in the streams. And, uh, you know, our Martians aren't going to have anything. Um, to start with. So um, the idea that an autocrat could gain control of the uh, air production or water production 
you know, that's really dangerous. So, right. uh, you know, Charles's, Kakel's solution is to have multiple, almost like multiple companies or multiple agencies, or instead of a centralized control and command system, you have m- many. So no, no monopolies. No one can have a monopoly. Anyway, I explore some of that in that chapter just because it's a super interesting idea. And then look at other earthly experiments, uh, w- which I got from um, Nicholas Christakis's book, Blueprint, where he, I didn't even know there was a data set of, of people that study um, shipwreck survivors and how mm. they survive. Now, right. the ones that shipwrecked and didn't survive we don't know what happened because they, they're dead but the ones that so it's a fairly narrow data set you know the ones that you know shipwrecked survived and were rescued to tell right. somebody what happened right so there's some bias selection bias yeah there, right? mm-hmm. definitely but but it is a kind of experiment uh, these are called natural experiments you know we can't control uh marriages and divorces but we can see what happens with marriages and divorces after the fact and look at what different laws about marriage and divorce affect, you know, in childhood, whatever. These are natural experiments that you couldn't actually run, but they happen anyway. So in in the case of the shipwrecks, it turns out more egalitarian or sort of horizontal control structures where everyone has an equal voice, you know, works better than a hierarchical military type command structure, uh, which is what most of these Navy ships were. Yeah. Uh, But, but when they got to the Island and they're just trying to survive, then it turns out, those kind of command structures didn't work. Those vertical ones didn't work as well. Anyway, it's just kind of a, yeah, maybe a small lesson for, you know, structuring things that are more uh, uh, horizontal or giving people a voice somewhere, which is what, you know, democracies do better than autocracies. Yeah. Yeah. So that I've come into contact with that, not personally myself, but my research, as you know, in part is conducted at the South Pole, Antarctica, where uh, there's isolation, you know, complete isolation for about nine months of the year. And the National Science Foundation has done psychological research studies on, among other things, you know, what's the optimum ratio of, of men and women uh, right. when you're down there. And right. that doesn't rely on, you know, stuff from uh, shipwrecks from, you know, going to ancient Tahiti or something like that. That's modern day human beings. So yeah, I think there's some interesting parallels that could be so drawn what, from there. So what do they say about that? I believe what, that, the, that the ideal ratio is about uh, two men for every woman, or at least this is, again, the, don't hold me to this, but it was uh, it was asymmetric and I think there were more men than women. And huh. I think the reason was it was, you know, 100% men, that would be that would be bad. I think was the dis- decision because <laughs> yeah. there'd be too much aggression and, and frustration. Yeah. But if it was all women, it would be fine. But they 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 felt like uh, you know they want to see what well, could there be could there be some men and women together. And then if there's fifty fifty, then a man might feel and you're much more qualified to you know look at the psychological aspects. But if there's fifty fifty, then you feel like well I I should have you know a partner or you know a female friend down here and I don't and so it would lead to some stress or something. Again, Again, nobody hold me to this on the internet. Don't send me emails. Uh, but there, the NSF has done social science experiments with the ideal, you know, kind of societies at the South Pole. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's also the kind of ideal place to go to if you want to escape from the mafia or, you know, or your credit card company. And I can't always say which is worse. But you quote from here from two, I don't know if you knew this, but two uh, very esteemed, uh, uh, you know, people are quoted within uh, inches of, of one another, Kim Stanley Robinson and David Brin. Oh, yeah. Both of them yeah. are my friends and both of them are UCSD alum. And in fact, okay. we have a rich tradition with uh, the Benford brothers, David Brin, um, Kim Stanley Robinson, and others. But you, you also discuss with him, and I'll be speaking with him uh, next week by the time my listeners hear, hear this, probably 
two weeks from now. Uh, but uh, I'll be speaking with uh, David about his ideas for possible benefits that come out of the COVID situation, because it may not be all negative. There may be radical transformations, both for good and bad. But he does describe in the book, I think it's it's pretty interesting, uh, the different types of constituencies and and how you would do this balloting and and how um, how such things could work and then also Kim Stanley Robinson who has the Mars trilogy very famous Red Mars Green Mars Blue Mars fascinating science fiction trilogy um, he talks about the different types of resources and commodities and companies and cultures that might pervade in the future and I wondered you know you you're not a science fiction writer but you kind of you know you have some friends that are science fiction writers as I do. Um, what is the value? And Arthur C. Clarke, obviously, is a science fiction uh, as well as a you know science writer himself. Um, what is it about science fiction that um, allows us to sort of you know play what what Einstein used to call Gedanken experiments, you know, thought yeah. experiments yeah. of the future? Why why is it so? Uh, do you think do you feel like I don't want to you know um, uh, bias your your response, but um, you know do you feel it's been successful? Do you feel like you know the ways that we thought of things? I mean, Arthur C. Clarke is famous in two thousand and one for you know predicting many many things, but uh, you know, the same could be said of the Simpsons. You know, they they predicted about uh, have, a, have a very good track rate, including uh, an episode about a virus pandemic spread by cats, which they call the perfect <laughs> the perfect storm. Uh, that's funny. But, uh, that but anyway, one. yeah. So, what is the yeah. value of science fiction since since our namesake? Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. Really, I think that the, the more foundational answer would begin with what's the value of storytelling at all. So there is a branch of evolutionary psychology uh, that, you know, studies literature, you know, what, why is it certain themes come up over and over and over in pretty much all great novels and works of fiction, re really related to human nature, you know, power struggles, status, sex, um, you know, all the gossip that goes around what people are doing and who's sleeping with who and who, you know, who has power, who's who's honest, who's deceptive, who you can trust, who you can't. Uh, so there's, there's good evolutionary reasons why gossip is, you know, structured around those particular themes because they, 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 they really have a, a lot of consequences for survival mm -hmm. of both individuals and group cohesiveness. And stories then are kind of tapping into that, those sort of gossip themes that come up and over and over. Just think of, you know, any of Shakespeare's plays or Jane Austen's novels, mm -hmm. you know, they, they're very much about human relationships and sex and power. And uh, so, but, but one theory of the origins of storytelling is, 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 is that it's a, it's a way of like a thought experiment in your head of, of counterfactual reasoning that helps you understand causal mm. relationships in the real world by running them through your head initially to see what you think might happen before you actually do it, which could have <laughs> real world bad consequences to take you out of the beam pool. So running the experiments, you know, cause like if I do this, then she's going to do that. And if I say this, then he'll say that. And, and so on that. So one theory about the origin of storytelling is that it's, it's an evolved mechanism for social cohesiveness involving human relationships and interactions that are potentially uh, high in conflict. So, you know, just think of a Jane Austen novel where you, you get this kind of meta meta uh, structure of, you know, he thought that she was going to think that he might go to the dance with this woman instead of, but he knew that she was thinking that he might do, you know, and, and, and that kind of meta reasoning is a, is a kind of, it's a story, but it's also a way of a, of a thought experiment. Like, okay, what, 
should I do down the line? Well, I better, like a chess player, back it up several moves to see which the consequences will be with the first move, right. you know, and, and so on. So I think what science fiction writers are doing is pretty much that, but they're doing it forward, you know, into the future uh, based on what we know about science, which, of course, is why I prefer science fiction to other forms of of fiction, just because I love science. And and in a way, um, it's a way of, you know, telling a story about what could happen. And I find science fiction writers to be even more prescient than scientists on a lot of these things, because they have to work it out in a in a plot you know, in which you have character development and plot development and a narrative arc that has to go somewhere. So science fiction Mm -hmm. writers, I think, run those thought experiments more carefully than scientists do because they they have to keep a a coherent narrative going that makes sense to them. And and therefore, I I think people like Arthur C. Clarke or or David Brin and others, you know, are are, they're really well worth reading both their fiction and and their nonfiction. Because even when they're writing, like when David writes his nonfiction essays and books, David Brin, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know he's really insightful in terms of creating these fictional stories. So he knows how to think through a thought experiment way down the line, right. what the consequences might be. So he's worth listening to. Do you feel, as David does and I do, that there'll be uh, positive outcomes that will result from this awful uh, pandemic that we're experiencing? Obviously, in every life is is infinitely precious. Uh, but uh, but will there be any any bright spots that, well, or green well, shirts hang, that could emerge? Hang on, hang on there. We don't think that every life is precious in other areas. Yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of you know just the speed limit. If you wanted to reduce the carnage of automobile deaths, thirty five thousand a year, reduce the speed limit. To 25 miles an hour right well no way we're not doing that okay well and then i guess life is not infinitely precious right or limit abortion you know yeah i mean you could you know so we make these decisions all the time and you know insurance companies they know the value of a life because they have to pay out or automobile companies that have to pay off a settlement you know what's what's the life what's the value of the life of the person that was killed by the car or whatever you know judges juries insurance companies they put a price you know it's like 1.3 million dollars per life whatever so mm-hmm. that's that's already been done. We do that all the time. And of course, the thing we're in the middle of right now is, you know, the economic shutdown. And, and everyone's Toby. Toby Young wrote an article about this and got hammered on Twitter yesterday mm-hmm. for this. Just bringing it up, like maybe shutting down the economy indefinitely is not a good idea because people could die from other causes having to do with, you know, lack of food or, 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 you know, housing and, and, you know, without any income at all, you can't pay your bills. And at what point you can't get food, suicide, uh, suicide, depression, uh, domestic violence apparently is is a little uptick on Mm -hmm. that in the last week or two. So, you know, it should be okay. Back to our free speech. It should be okay to bring that up. Mm -hmm. I get hammered as being, you know, insensitive Insensitive, to human life. Of course, we would all prefer nobody dies from the corona virus just like we would nobody dies from the flu but people do die of the flu and we're willing to you know accept a certain level of that but but because we're used to it mm-hmm. so in terms of uh you know silver line you know i don't know uh i suspect that 
greetings will change. You know, we'll, we'll all be doing the, the, the yoga bow or the Japanese bow instead, or maybe the elbow bump the rather bump. than the handshake. Right. You know, that, I, you know, I don't care. I can, I can live with that. Um, you know, uh, you know, as for other things, I don't think anybody knows. It's too soon right. to tell. Yeah. I, I, I always point out, you know, that I believe that the origin of uh, the handshake with your right hand originates from the fact that people, when they were armed, the dominant yes. armed predominantly in society was the right hand. So you were showing yeah, yeah, that you weren't armed. Right. So, uh, you know, no, what better, right. what better outcome could there be? Yeah. Uh, I want to take a, a, a detour to talk about, uh, back to book writing and your, and your process. Uh, for, we have a lot of writers. We host the Clarion Science Fiction Workshop yeah. every summer at UCSD. I believe this year will be probably virtual, but uh, there might be hope that it could be in person. Um, and that's, uh, you know, a, a lot of listeners are interested in your craft as a writer. And you got into this a little bit that you, that you write every day, but can you take us through like a normal day? I mean, you're very busy as a professor. You do, uh, you know, family obligation. You have a young, a young uh, son at home, as well as a, a home life with your with your wife. Um, but uh, but yeah. So, what is your craft like? How, how do you actually uh, maintain productivity? I, I don't really have a set schedule uh, all that much. I pretty much write in the afternoons. I usually work out in the mornings or mm-hmm. take my dog for a hike, then go for a bike ride, and and take care of business. Um, elsewhere. And then, you know, for a couple hours a day, I try to write. Uh, it depends on, of course, where I'm at, right? Right now, I'm just promoting this book. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not writing another book. Um, there's no secret uh, typing <laughs> here. No keyboard here. I'm writing the next book. Neural Although I'm always, I'm always thinking about what I should write next. Mm-hmm. And that depends on um, what might be the market interest in such a thing. And I don't just mean marketing as in money. I mean, no. reader interest. What, yeah. what do people care about? And, um, and, and, and then what am I passionate about? What do I really want to spend the next couple of years reading about, thinking about, writing about, talking about? And uh, so, but just to kind of take a bigger picture, you know, I, I was always interested in, in the big question. So when I became a born again Christian and I was 17 in high school, mm-hmm. then I went to uh, Pepperdine to major in theology. I was really interested in a, being a college professor because it seemed like a great gig, right? Oh yeah. You get, you get paid to speak and write and talk and think big ideas. That's Do you know what Neil Armstrong did, by the way, after he came back, uh, eventually after he came back from landing on the moon? The yeah, first what, what, wasn't he a professor at He became Ohio a college State? professor, yeah, in uh, yeah. Cincinnati, I think, yeah. yeah. But, but yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. So that shows you we're in the we're in a very uh, esteemed profession, right? I, I, I like the life. You know, it's great. And uh, But, but the, um, uh, I, what was I going to say about that? Uh, you're talking about uh, when you graduate from Pepper after you're born again. Oh, oh, yeah. So I was always interested in, in the big questions, like is there a God? Uh, you know, what about free will and determinism? Um, you know, moral questions. And it seemed like the, the theologians were really interested in these things. Like, well, I'll be a professor of theology, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so, but but at Pepperdine, I found out, you know, that well, what do you got to do to be a college professor? You have to have a PhD. Okay, what do I have to do to get a PhD in theology? Well, you got to master Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. Latin, and I could barely get through Spanish. I thought, oh boy, <laughs> I got to switch to something I could do, which, you know, I was, you know, I was pretty good at, at science, math, statistics. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I went into social sciences. Um, but, but I still like the big ideas. And um, so when I abandoned religion 
for various reasons, uh, 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 I was still interested in, okay, well, what is the origin of the universe? Why is there something rather than nothing? Is there a God or not? Why is the universe finely tuned? What is the basis of consciousness? Where does our moral sense come from? You know, are we strictly electric meat determined like a machine, like a cockroach, or, are we, or is there some element of free will in there, volition or whatever? All of those questions, you know, all the way up to abortion and, and foreign policy and immigration and so on, I, I always try to bring to it a, a scientific perspective from a secular perspective because I don't believe anymore. Mm -hmm. But I still want to know, well, you know, what, what, what's the answer? Maybe there isn't an answer, but, you know, what's my answer in my head based on what other people think that are smarter than me? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of them. So my writing is pretty much around that. You know, why people believe weird things was about, you know, the paranormal, the supernatural, and so on. So I debunked that. And then how we believe the second book was, well, what about God? So religious beliefs and so on. And then, well, if there's no God, then what about morality? So the science of good and evil is the third book. And so my book kind of build on just topics I think are important that everybody's interested in um, and that I care about, that I want to know what the answer is, which is why, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I was really appreciative of you correcting me on some of the stuff in that chapter on, on why there's something rather than nothing. You know, I just want to know. Mm -hmm. I don't have an agenda. Yeah, I just no, want to know right. what the, what's the answer. And if there's no answer, okay, that's okay, that's okay too. All right. Like the afterlife, you know, my previous book, Heavens on Earth, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I saw that bumper sticker once that said, militant agnostic. I don't know, and you don't either. <laughs> and, uh, that's right. And I'll, uh, I'll fight you to the death for our, <laughs> our media, our media uh, splitting the difference. Um, I want to uh, talk more about teaching as a, as a professor. So let me first ask you a, a devilish question. Um, do you think tenure is necessary? Now, I'm sitting here. Thank God I am a, uh, you know, a, a professor of tenure uh, uh, long ago, but, um, and, and I don't take that for granted in the bit. I think it's the greatest, I always say it's the greatest three-hour week job in the world. Uh, but no, it's, it's actually a lot more than that, as you know. Well, it's, uh, the, it's, the, it's the autonomy that you have. That's right. Yeah, it's the freedom to be an intellect. And I think that, that vignette that you were just mentioning that we corresponded about, you know, misconceptions mis, uh, that, that you might have had and I might have had. Um, I think a scholar is, such as yourself is distinguished by the fact that he or she will be open to just learning and to being a good student. And to that end, I want to talk a little bit about teaching and learning. And um, But first, with that provocative question, do you feel that tenure is is necessary in today's modern age? Do you think it's it's a valuable? Uh, it's the only you know field that that has permanent. You know, one of my colleagues said, "Be careful when you hire somebody on a search committee <laughs> yeah. because you know it's not like uh, getting married. You can always get divorced. Uh, but with tenure, it's for life, uh, whether you like it or not. Thank God. Yeah. I love all my colleagues. I'd never want to divorce a single one of them. Yeah, yeah. But do you yeah. think it's necessary yeah. in the physical science or in the social science? What, what's your feeling? Uh, on well, I, I I used to think it was not necessary anymore because the original reason to set it up was more because of the fear of of right-wing forces yeah. suppressing the speech of liberal professors and mm -hmm. that, that was the case say in the 40s and 50s yeah maybe into the 60s. But then that kind of all loosened up and I thought, well, there's really not much need for tenure anymore. I mean, professors are pretty free to speak and say whatever they want. What's the problem? Right. But now we have the opposite where, you know, professors are censored by, you know, the political correct, uh, you know, social justice activists and so on. This whole identity politics thing is causing a lot of professors to have to go into the closet if they 
I don't just mean conservatives, yeah. but I mean just centrists or, or people that are critical of the far left. They feel uh, like they could be under attack, lose their jobs if they don't have tenure. So maybe we still need tenure. I don't know. But I mean, that's kind of a broad question. I think uh, 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 a simpler solution would be just instead of it being a social norm that everybody practices, just let universities do whatever they want. Much like law firms, you know, that you, you want to make, you, you want to make partner. That's kind of the goal, which is a kind of a tenure for lawyers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but it, but it's sort of institutional wide. And I think they've handled that pretty well, maybe, but doctors don't have the equivalent, medical doctors don't have the equivalent of partnership, except ownership of their practice, something like that. Um, it's slightly different than tenure. So I would say, you know, leave it up to the universities to decide, you know, what, what works for them. Of course, with public universities, and it's more of a government decision. But, you know, when I mentioned I went to Pepperdine, you know, it's a Church of Christ school, it's religious. They don't require their professors to uh, uh, swear by any faith, as far as I know. Um, you know, and I would love to teach there. It's in Malibu. You know, it's a beautiful <laughs> campus. It's much closer than Chapman to me right. from Santa Barbara, um, where I live now. But, but you know, it would be their right to not hire me, right? right? I wouldn't feel like I was being discriminated against not being hired because it's in their mission statement that, you know, they're a Christian university. Why the hell right. would you hire an atheist like me? Well, maybe they want to just as a, you know, a devil's advocate. It's a good mm-hmm. way to teach their students how the other side thinks. Affirmative <laughs> action. I, yeah. It's a kind of, you know, diversity of affirmative action, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't feel like um, I was being cheated out of a job opportunity and being discriminated against because right. that's, that's their mission statement, right. but that's a private university. So that's right. different. If you applied to work at Yeshiva university and, New York, you're not a rabbi. It would be probably different. Although they have people that aren't Jewish that are professors there. So, um, right. So, you know, belief, but, but you're right. It's sort of be, a, a, you know, be hard, harder to justify in some sense, but I, I still think it, it could make sense. I mean, there are people, I mean, we have a, a Nazarene school here, Point Loma Nazarene in, in San Diego. I've been there to speak beautiful campus. Also these, these, you know, these, uh, these Christian schools are just so phenomenal. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but, uh, and, uh, but, but yes, I think it's uh, what interests me the most is sort of your teaching style. And one thing that struck me as a professor, and maybe this is obvious to my undergraduates, but I was never taught how to be a professor. It's sort of, you know, oh, you're right. smart and uh, you did some, arc, uh, you know, abstract, abstruse research. So you must be really good at teaching. I mean, they're really different skills in the meta skills totally. stack. Totally different. And so <laughs> I want to know how, how can you, well, I'm going to get to my big question, which I ask all the thinkers that come on my show later on, but, but can you uh, teach someone to be a good teacher? So the question I'll ask later on is, you know, can you teach someone to be creative? And is, t- is creativity inborn or is it sort of, uh, or is it possible to acquire? We'll answer that at the end of the show. But but for now, what about teaching? Uh, what, what are the necessary ingredients to be a teacher? That's, well, I, uh, I, I think like most of us, we just have mentors that we admired mm-hmm. that inspired us as teachers. Like, I, I'd like to be like like that guy. That, that, that guy really changed my life. That's how I felt. Like, I want to be like him. Now, I think there's some temperament uh, to it. I mean, some people are super shy, super introverted. You know, maybe they're going to have a harder time entertaining a, a you know a classroom full of kids. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean they can't. They have to be bad teachers. They may be boring, but you can you can teach certain skills. Like, you know, there's all sorts of tutorials about how to build a proper PowerPoint keynote presentation. Certain do's and don'ts. That that's pretty straightforward. But you know, just sort of the emotionally engaged professor with students you know that's hard to quantify yeah. right mm-hmm. i mean some people have it some people don't yeah and um 
you know, I don't know how you bottle that because that has to do with more of somebody's personality. And we all know there's a huge variation there. We've all had super inspirational professors and others that are incredibly boring. It is a little odd in the academy that, um, again, you go through all these training programs of how to be a researcher, like yeah. in your case, uh, how to be a professional scientist and publish in, in, in uh, scholarly journals. Uh, and and you've had tons of instructions on that uh, yeah. as well as modeling. And then then you get hired and they go, okay, now go teach. No <laughs> one's ever told you, well, right. how do I do that? Well, so yeah. you think back, well, I had this great professor. I'm going to do what he did. Something like yeah. sort of all you can do is model. Well, what I found so interesting is, and I think it's the only place in the entire, you know, there's a federal register of approved documents. So it includes, you know, like the handbook for working, I don't know, at the IRS, you know, collecting taxes. It's a handbook for this. And there's a handbook because flight instruction, it requires a federal uh, certification. So in the whole hierarchy of government, you know, jobs and bean counters uh, to, to, you know, tax collectors to whatever, uh, centers for disease control workers, uh, there is uh, a single instance of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it occurs in the uh, flight instructor's handbook from the Federal Aviation Administration. I'm studying to become a flight instructor. I'm a commercial pilot. Um, I fly a lot, as you know. And one thing I'd love to, you know, kind of pick your brain on is we don't even get like the remedial sense of this. Now, in an, in an airplane cockpit, um, you know, I've known for, because I had to be a student and to become a flight instructor, you have to be a student, you have to be a right. pilot, you have right. to be commercially rated, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It still doesn't guarantee you could be a good teacher. You could be Chuck Yeager. He might not have been a great uh, flight instructor, but nevertheless, um, there's a, sort of a basic level of the understanding of, of needs and purpose. And I'd like to connect that to uh, chapter t- uh, 10 in your book, Does the Universe Have a Purpose? Hmm. And its subtitle is Alvi's Error and the Meaning of Life. So hmm. those of you who will remember uh, the wonderful film Annie Hall, there's a character, Alvi Singer, who's uh, Woody Allen's uh, character. And he, he's another devil, right? I mean, Woody Allen has to be a devil yeah. nowadays. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, he complains to his doctor. The uh, his mother comes to take him to a psychiatrist and says, "He uh, he complains to the doctor. The universe is expanding. Well, the universe is expanding, and if it's expanding someday, it'll break apart, and that'll be the end of everything." His exasperated mother upbraids the youth. What has the universe got to do with it? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn's not expanding. And so you call this Alvi's error. And that's the error, you know, sort of ascribing teleological meaning and purpose to life. And you, uh, you and I have this interesting connection that, that we're both sort of irritated in a good way by the famous theologian, William Lane Craig. In mm-hmm. fact, the, the only reason I was on Ben Shapiro's show is that William Lane Craig was on his show. And mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of point out some of the uh, category errors and, and other, you know, th- claims that he had made that I found um, uh, su- suspect and wanted to sort of correct, namely, you know, this kind of first cause. It's always the same with with theologians, um, you know, which, which I have great respect for, you know, that the universe must have had a beginner. And because it must have had a beginner, you know, that suggests a designer, creator came into existence, nothing that exists, well, the cosmological argument. And then it goes to the, but it always ends up with Jesus. And, and as a practicing <laughs> yeah. Jew, you know, I wanted yeah. to kind of take it, take the angle and, and get into that from, from a Jewish perspective. So that was my, um, that was my uh, take on things that I discussed with Ben on his show. And actually you were one of Ben's first guests back in episode six of his show. 
and you discussed uh, the multiverse, et cetera. And actually, I, Ben gave me a shout out uh, during that episode that they would have, you right. guys should consult to me. And that was, that was really cute to be associated. But I want to talk about this notion of purpose. And, and you, you talk about Alvi's error. So, so can you describe what you mean by Alvi's error? And, and... Yeah, that, well, you mentioned that category error, is, or you might call it a levels error, that you know, the theologian is operating at, at some long time scale, like, you know, it, like, Craig argued if if it if in a billion years from now there's no Earth, and 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 in twenty billion years the universe will be gone. Whatever, what difference does it make how I treat somebody tomorrow? Right. You know, wrong level. Okay, it, it matters to the person being affected by you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It matters to me how I'm treated. It, and I don't care if, if in a billion, I'm not living a billion years from now. You know, I live in Brooklyn. The universe is, <laughs> Brooklyn's not expanding, right? So, um, and, and that that kind of error pervades a lot of just common thinking about what's the purpose of life. I think most people haven't given it that much thought. You know, they just sort of inculcate what they were raised w- with, usually their religion, because, mm-hmm. you know, religion has sort of had a monopoly on this question. And scientists were supposed to stay out of that, you know, non-overlapping magisteria, NOMA, you know, Gould's famous NOMA, you know, that's none of your business, scientists, you know, this is what theologians Stay in your lane, right? Stay in your lane, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is crazy. Of course, scientists can have something to say about this. And even if you end up at some epistemological wall, say, between you and William Lane Craig on what you mean by the first moment or what was there before the big bang and you know at some point it, the further back we go we're just going to hit a wall we, 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 there's nothing more to say we just don't know anymore right uh, or even some concepts like I, I struggle with in that chapter on uh, why there's something rather than nothing would you virtually mm-hmm. correct me on some things but but just the idea of nothing you know if you if you keep drilling down to the nothing, you know, it, you, not just no stuff in the universe, no stars and planets and people and so on, but no light, no space and time. There's not even darkness because darkness would imply that there's light somewhere, but there can't, there's no light, so there's no darkness. And there's not even nothing to be nothing. I mean, it's just a <laughs> word we use. And, and therefore, there's also no platonic categories. There's no logic, there's no mathematics, there's no concepts of beauty or truth that exist separate from beauty and truthful things. And and therefore, there can't even be a God. I mean, the moment right. you say, well, there's this God that lives outside of nothing. No, that's that's not even possible by that particular category. You're making another category error. You know, well, the, the, there was no universe and then there was. Well, what? where was he? God standing? Right. Create and, it's, and, and then on the other side, the, the devil is due. You know, the Lawrence Krauses of the world will say, oh, the laws of physics. Uh, well, where do they come from? And where did the quantum vacuum come from? And from whose perspective are we looking at the universe sort of externally from to populate and create the multiverse, which is you know, sort of a, a long chain in the anthropic line of argument. But um, I want to talk a little bit, you know, which relies on that. But, but, and, but let me just say, oh, yeah, say sorry, parenthetically sorry, that, you know, after uh, my conversations with you, I, I mean, I really kind of felt I understood in my mind that at some point we all just have to say, I don't know. Nobody yeah. knows. And and this may be, I don't know if you want to go this far, maybe one of these Mysterian mysteries where we'll never have an answer to it. Right. Because you can, there's always some regress, you know, where did the multiverse come from, you know? Right whatever. And that, you know, at some point we just, we just have a brain this size that uses abstract concepts in a certain way because of the structure of our world that we evolved in. And, and we, we may just not be able to conceive of something that's 
that far beyond our epistemology. Yeah. And we just have to say, you know what? Nobody knows. I agree completely. Actually, next week is Passover and I've preloaded a tweet, you know, because I take off from work. I desist from work. So I'm not like the ancient Israelites enslaved and always enslaved to my iPhone or my work, <laughs> uh, my telescopes. Uh, so I preloaded four tweets that I'm going to send out and, and kind of... Uh, you um, actually go off social media? I do. I do. Oh, wow, good for you. Media. I don't email and I actually command, you know, such as I can my graduate students because, you know, if you work six days, you know, I work with a billionaire, you know, f- I'm fortunate to be working with a billionaire uh, patron of my experiment, Jim Simons, who's uh, rumored to be the world's smartest billionaire. And, and uh, you know, he also doesn't work seven days a week. And, and I asked him about that once. And he, and he sort of came down on the same side that I do, which is, which is if no matter how much money you have, if you're you could be a slave to many different, you know, uh, we call it taivas in Hebrew, you know, just addictions that are, they're not harmful. I mean, they're not like, you know, doing needle drugs or something like that. It's, you know, I'm teaching and advising my students, but to be on all the time. And part of the meaning of the word Sabbath in Hebrew means a refreshing rest. You know, it's almost like a pause that refreshes the old soda jingle from the 70s. But it is actually an active rest. In other words, you're actually working to rejuvenate your soul. And mm. I feel like everybody, you know, Ben Shapiro joke recently, like we're all... We're all orthodox now, you know, with, with COVID lockdown, you know, we can't do the thing, <laughs> we can't funny. drive, we can't go right, anywhere. Right. Um, <laughs> but getting a taste of it, there are actually green shoots, I say, I'm spending more time with my wife and kids and, yeah. and actually deep, deep, you know, advising of my graduate students that, that I just don't have time for during the normal times. And, and I just, you know, I feel like that is, uh, that has been refreshing and, and, and that to me is, is interesting, but, you know, maybe, just getting... maybe that's, maybe that's the answer to your question about the long-term consequences of the pandemic. Maybe we'll mm-hmm. all... Uh, sort of build into our our weeks a, a day of isolation. Yeah. I mean, we didn't appreciate what we had. One of my friends, you know, tweeted out this long list of things for herself or on Facebook rather so that a year from now it'll come up in her feed, you know, a year ago, memories from this time. And I'll say like, you couldn't go to the supermarket without standing on tape markers that were six feet apart. It's just <laughs> inconceivable that we, right. uh, but, but getting back to what you said, these, these infinite regresses, I find them very delicious. And my four questions, you know, the famous four questions on Passover, are, you know, why is this night different from other nights and, and the different children that ask these questions, it's meant to stimulate inquiry. And my four questions, and I'm curious, what are your four questions along this line? Mine are, you know, how did the universe emerge? How did something come from nothing? I think that might be uh, one of these chicken or egg questions. And I realized all of my questions are basically that. In other words, how did life originate from, you know, how did we get from uh, protons and neutrons to croutons, you know, from from inanimate (laughs) things to things that life. And then then from croutons, you know, from Bach to, uh, from bacteria to Bach and then yeah. you know and then really into consciousness and is there is there an ultimate end are we alone and all these are chicken or the and I think that that um, comfort that level of uh, intellectual facility I'm not saying I exemplify it but I think you do and that's to you're comfortable not saying I know the answer like I don't know it's okay to say I don't know and I think in these times everybody wants answers when is this going to be over when are we going to defeat this and it's not like a military battle you knew when you'd win or lose now it's like we have this indefinite sentence against an literal invisible foe and we don't know when it will end or if it will end but we know life will be changed forever I think this will be you 
you know, kind of, I think Ed Young said, you know, this will be generation C instead of generation X, Y, or Z, the COVID generation. Uh, yeah, that's a good I think way it might change it. things even more. So we're, we're coming to the end. I'm going to uh, be leaving soon. I know you have some commitments, but I wanted to finish up with a couple of quick, quick points. One thing I've always wanted, you know, you, you mentioned this a lot, and just as a philosophical, you know, it's rare I get the chance to pick your brain for, for so much uh, time. And so I want to take advantage of it. Uh, frequently in the book and elsewhere, you reference Carl Sagan, and this quip, which I didn't know was not his originally, but but uh, that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You taught me somebody else uh, actually. Yeah, Martello Truzzi uh, yeah. actually coined something, like, but but it wasn't as artfully put, slightly longer, and he wasn't as well known. So you get two effects: one, a, a, a sharper, shorter quip is more likely to migrate yes. up, and there's that phenomenon of, of quotes migrate up to the most famous person who ever said them. As right. Yogi Berra said, "I didn't say half the things I said." Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> that's right. It's usually it's usually Yogi Bear or Mark Twain, and you know, there's a handful of others, right? And uh, uh, George Bernard Shaw, and yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, the way Carl put it, I thought it was more succinct. Um, you know, and and of course, he said it, you know, on in Cosmos, you know, that half a billion people saw, so of yeah. course, that that has an, an effect as well. But it was really first articulated by David Hume mm-hmm. in his mm-hmm. um, uh, treatise on miracles about that a man should apportion pr- pr- his belief to the evidence, proportion your belief to the evidence. So the pr- principle proportionality you should um you know adjust as we would say in bayesian reasoning adjust your creeds based on the adjustment of the priors and those are always changing right so right uh you know an ordinary claim requires ordinary evidence you know if i say well i took the one this is my example i took the 101 freeway south to the 118 and the 23 and then i went down mm-hmm. and up at chapman but by the way at the junction of the 23 and the 101 i was abducted by aliens <laughs> and we went to the pleiades and i met the pleiadians who warned me to to warn the earthlings about global warming whatever okay which part of that story needs extraordinary evidence okay right obviously so um you know and that and and that's you know a basic principle of all you know critical thinking and and reasoning like a scientist is you know well what's the evidence and the the more extraordinary the claim you know the 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 resurrection of jesus from the grave you know 100 billion people have lived and died before the seven and a half billion people alive today not one of them has come back from the dead except for maybe one maybe Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. is the evidence that would that's a hundred billion to one (laughs) Uh, miracle. Okay, are the is the evidence a hundred billion to one stronger for that than other claims about what happened in the Roman Empire about that time? No. Right. And that's what I'm getting at, really. Just a short, you know, little umbrage that I take at it. You know, there's there's evidence, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to go to my telescope and now I'm going to get some extraordinary evidence. I mean, usually right. it's, it's 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 in quality or in quantity. In other words, there's either statistical, you know, or or uh, systematic sort of uncertainty associated with with data. And you know, so if a hundred million a million people. Uh, said the same thing happened, would that make you believe in one specific person? Yeah. So you have to adjust your priors to do that. But I think, you know, maybe my broader point is that we do have sort of this culture that now with the decline of of religion and the rise of the nuns, as your uh, former guest Zuckerman, uh, Phil Zuckerman, I think. Phil, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that he talks about and uh, documented at Pitzer College, um, you know, that are we are substituting science and, and even scientists as, as sort of idols. I make the case in my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, of the, 
the Nobel Prize to a scientist, you almost can't read a book. In fact, your book has, you know, half a dozen mentions of just the words Nobel Prize, and that's fine. Uh, but we kind of use it as this imprimatur. And I always point, you know, there's 400, you know, uh, guys in Sweden that decide this every year and not, not taking anything away from the, from the winners because they don't choose to win it. That's actually the only, uh, only stipulation. You can't nominate yourself. So <laughs> I always point out that reduced the, the challenge by one person out of, you know, 7 billion when I had to nominate people. Uh, but, <laughs> but the point is, um, you know, we kind of want people. We need, as you quote also in this book, you know, it's really so, uh, so uncanny how, uh, how you, uh, you know, you came into my dreams and you, and you extracted all these things out of my mind. But, but one of the things that I always talk about is the scene from A Few Good Men where mm. Jack Nicholson basically comes down, you know, you can't handle the truth, you know, which my father used to say. He should have said alliterative. It should have been alliterative. It should have said, you can't take the truth. But, but be that as it may, <laughs> uh, I think Reiner knew what he was doing, right? Yeah. Um, but the, the point is like, you need me on that wall. You want me on that wall because, you know, who's going to do it? You. And I think uh, people in society, the more educated, but not scientifically educated, uh, this is more true. They want you know, these kind of fifth degree black belt intellects, like, like the Nobel laureates, like the Carl Sagan's, um, et cetera. And, and nowadays we're seeing it with like Dr. Fauci, like every, anything he said, like they'll cut off Trump yeah. during his speech, you yeah. know, and, and then they'll immediately breaking news. We'll go to and Fauci's talking about like economics or right. he doesn't know anything about that. And we have this halo effect. And I wonder, you know, yes. if that extends, yes. I mean, Carl Sagan was a masterful scientific communicator and he did great science as well. And, and it's sort of unique. Uh, our friend, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he often says, you know, when somebody asked me to comment on some scientific discovery, I, I, I don't comment on it. I refer to a real scientist working in that field. He's, of course, an astrophysicist trained, uh, you know, at, at uh, to, you know, as a PhD. But I think the, um, you know, the point is we tend to really um, want to, you know, lionize and, 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 and regard scientists. And I wonder, do you feel like that is a consequence just from your observations of the decline of religion that science and scientists in particular have taken on this sort of outsized role, which, you know, I, I naively will benefit from, right? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, maybe. Um, I mean, I think there's several things that could come of the rise of the nuns that really started in the, say, the 60s. One explanation we have for the New Age movement, the sort of New Age spiritual movement and crystals and astrology and all that psychic stuff was the decline of mainstream religion. It was already starting then. Mm -hmm. not, not amongst the general population, but just the you know, decline of power and influence of religion, which is why in the 80s, you know, the moral majority rose up. It's like that was a pushback against what was already happening. They want to get back in the business of having power and control that churches once had in the Middle Ages and early modern period, but we're losing. So, and I think one explanation for why people like creationists are so obsessed with, you know, getting into science, because we live in the age of science. If you want to make an argument for a creator, you got to use the language of scientists. You know, you got to talk about the fine-tunedness and the Big Bang and all that stuff, or else you're not in the conversation anymore. So I think mm -hmm. scientists really have been elevated uh, just in general as a, as a yeah. population. But like when I remember when Stephen Hawking used to come to Caltech every year and, yeah. and he, he would give a public talk and uh, you know, this is in, in uh, you know, Beckman auditorium, 1100 seats, you know, and it was, it was standing room only and they were lined up out all afternoon yeah. to get in there. And uh, you know, he gets a standing ovation for showing up. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Right. Yeah. And, they, and, and, and it, it is not, and, and you know, now Sagan commanded audiences like that, but, but Hawking, even more because I think yeah. of the, the disease it was a sense of like this brain this just a pure brain yeah you know Mind. there's no body just a pure brain of just mm -hmm. pure thought yeah 
And, uh, it, you know, so I, I get that, you know, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a kind of, you know, deification. Yeah, there is a, there's a Hubble fellowship, uh, at the, uh, that NASA puts out the most prestigious postdoctoral fellowship. There's an Einstein fellowship, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a Sagan fellowship, uh, you know, well, there uh, is, I didn't yeah, know that. So this looks for, you know, uh, uh, astrobiology and, and, and stellar astrophysics and all the good things that he worked in, um, you know, yeah. I wrote a paper on the Sagan effect, uh, in which I actually looked at if there was such a thing as a Sagan effect. The Sagan effect is if mm-hmm. you start popularizing science, your real science productivity will go down. Nope, right. not in the case of Sagan. Not in his nor, case, nor, with, right. uh, nor, nor with Gould. They were both, uh, I think they both pushed over 500 peer-reviewed published journal articles. Although, to be fair, a lot of Sagans were in, you know, were NASA publications. That, right. that is to say NASA produced. So that was him and 500 other scientists or whatever. But That's still, right. he was, you know, productive active in there so you can do both um and yeah, i hope so uh, you know, and, and, but but i think uh, just to say that because cosmo we're recording this cosmos is airing season three now yeah the second one of the reboot with neil mm-hmm. and uh you know there's a you know a- andrian has definitely mm-hmm. written kind of a spirituality into the whole cosmic story which is yeah. all science but underlying it in a rather poetic writing you know most of what neil says is you know andrine's words that's right um and um you know there, there's in a way i think science is our mythic story about mm. who we are where we came from where we're going what it all means yeah. you know and everybody knows that which is why again theologians creationists everybody you know they kind they kind of come to you to say what are my best arguments for god's existence i can't just use Anselm's <laughs> arguments anymore. I I need the That's Big right. Bang updated. I, right. I needed. Modern. I need inflationary cosmology. How can I build this into my theology? And it's funny because I told you on the podcast we recorded for a science salon, you know, on the day that BICEP2, the experiment that I uh, helped co-create, announced that we had discovered evidence, you know, direct evidence for inflation, you know, both uh, uh, the Discovery Institute and Lawrence Krauss, you know, took completely diametrically, they both agreed we were going to win Nobel Prizes, but uh, but where they disagreed is, you know, one said this is clear evidence for the fine-tuning and the existence of God, and the other one said, "This is the exa- uh, uh, the evidence." Max Tegmark and others, you know, that we don't need. Uh, Krauss always calls a supernatural, you know, shenanigans yeah. or whatever. But getting to religion, and I want to conclude. Uh, first, let me conclude. Uh, actually, I'm going to take this around. Maybe we'll edit it. Maybe we won't. It's kind of fun just to go all around with you uh, and and kind of uh, just riff. And, and you talk about uh, uh, going on a going on a version of a of a Hitchens uh, century mile, you know, ride. Uh, but it was uh, regarding drinking in the book. Oh, yeah. I won't spoil it for the readers, but you should you should get the book just for the just for the uh, hitch stories. Hitch stories, which are you know, I miss him. <laughs> he uh, was quite did. a character. And I never met to... him. I, I had yeah. the chance, you know, to hear him. But I, I you know, it's just take advantage of everybody. Take advantage of chances. You have to hear the great minds. Uh, so let me go from, or we just discussed God and religion. I want to talk about the origin of the name of this podcast is uh, Into the Impossible. And that comes from uh, what are known as Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Three Laws. And so he says, Clarke's first law is that when distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. Nowadays, we'd say he or she. Uh, when he <laughs> yeah. or she state, uh, states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. That's Clark's number one law. Number two is where we get uh, our name uh, for the podcast. Uh, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the name of our, of our podcast. Uh, and then there is Clark's third law. 
which connects to Shermer's last law, and that is <laughs> any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I want to uh, just give you the opportunity. Can you explain what is Shermer's last law? Now you didn't, re- you kind of named it after yourself, but it's it's oh, just you a did, joke. You did so you did so with with great humility. I, yeah. I don't think yeah you, you're van glorious enough to, but, but <laughs> no. it actually has some resonance to this. So can you explain what Shermer's last? Yeah, law? of course I was aware of Clark's three laws going all the way back to being in college because he was such a icon uh, for so many of us getting started in the sciences. And uh, but his third law I always liked because um, it's a great example of of when I say there's no such thing as the supernatural or the paranormal. It's just what appears to be that because we don't have an explanation for it yet. Such that in the current example I use of this is that paraplegic guy that. All right, no, he's a quadriplegic um, that has a chip in his motor cortex and he can control the cursor on his computer and he can do emails and play video games and whatnot just by thinking. Now, if you don't know about the chip in the brain, it looks like he has telekinesis. He's moving things with his thoughts, right? So, you know, I can imagine a time sort of like a Michio Kaku, the future of the brain where, you know, we all have these chips and computers and we're wirelessly connected to the internet. You walk into your house and you just think Mozart and Mozart comes on. Much yep. like today we go, Alexa, play Mozart. Yep. Mozart comes on. It's you just, just set off a thousand Alexas around the world. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, and uh, so something like that. So then I got to thinking about that in the context of SETI and the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, my connection there professionally is, you know, debunking the ufologists and alien abductees and all that stuff, the debunking, explaining. Um, but there's, a, as you know, real science, you know, are they out there <laughs> and have they come here? Two separate questions. Are they out there? Well, as you know, everybody knows, they, scientists know they're not going to be just like us, mm-hmm. you know, like bipedal primates, you know, speaking English with a weird accent with gnarly mm-hmm. stuff on their forehead, like on Star Trek. You know, these are the limitations of you know, Hollywood war- wardrobes, but, but neither are they going to be culturally or scientifically anywhere close to us. You know, so these stories you hear about, you know, the alien craft landed in Roswell and we back engineered silicon chips, you know, which were like mm-hmm. five years away otherwise, you know, so the aliens were only five years ahead of us you know this is impossible you know just because on an evolutionary time scale the chances of a alien species evolving lockstep with us you know in some other part of the galaxy perfectly within a few years is you know zilch right <laughs> they're going to either be way behind us in which case we'll never encounter them because you know they're not going to have radio technology or spaceships and uh, unless we go there right. or they're going to be ahead of us how far ahead of us you know a hundred thousand years a million years mm-hmm. a billion years you know look what we've accomplished moore's law and so on just in the last century extrapolate that out they will be godlike to us. Right. Now, this this idea is not original to me. Science fiction writers have played with this for a long time, but I just codified it, linking it to Clark's third law by calling it Shermer's last law because I'm never going to name a law to myself. <laughs> it's it's just a tongue in cheek thing. But the point is that. Um, you know, the future of, you know, what we will be, and you could also apply this to far future humans, Yeah. you know, like what will, you know, what, what will the internet be like in a century from now? Well, hell, no one predicted the internet just like in 1950s or 60s, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it took pretty, took pretty much everybody by surprise, what, you know, how it evolved. Yeah. So we just don't know. And when we don't know, it just seems godlike. Yeah. And that, and that, that's the point of that. 
Interesting. <clears throat> so I want to uh, conclude by talking about, uh, well, one last thing about books. Um, I've noted a commonality, just want to get your opinion on it. So there's a great deal of popularity on social psychology, on, on books such as yours, Stephen Pinker's, Counterman's, et cetera. And there's also a tremendous inf influence. And I think they're outsized uh, in, in terms of their proportion of scientists that are actually doing the work uh, between the number of books written by psychologists or social scientists and also astronomers. And uh, I wonder if that's, and I wanted to get your take on this. Maybe it's total nonsense. So don't be afraid to say so. But I think, you know, psychology and astronomy are both the only two sciences, uh, one soft, one hard, I suppose, that can be done uh, with the tools and, and experimental equipment that one is born with, namely psychology and astronomy done with your eyeballs, which I always point out are two refracting telescopes. And, and really nothing <laughs> more. Right. And uh, yeah, I just wonder, what, you know, there's a surge in popularity of books such as yours and, and your friend Stephen Pinker. I should read his blurb, which because it's, it's quite, uh, quite um, uh, voluminous in, in its praise. And Michael Shermer is our foremost explorer of alternative crackpot and dangerous ideas. And at the same time, one of our most powerful voices for science, sanity, and humane values. In this engrossing collection, Shermer shows why these missions are consistent. It's the searchlight of reason that best exposes errors and evil. And I think you guys uh, have very you know, common, common themes in some of your other books. But I think what distinguishes you is that you're kind of uh, a little bit broader, that you, you really go into territory, the physical sciences, and, and explore things in a little bit more detail. Um, although I should point out, both of you guys are, are really outstanding teachers. And he has a free course or a course that's his Harvard University course on rationality, which I've been watching along with my kids and my uh, nieces and nephews. And that's uh, that's called rationality. And I, I urge people to go out and, and listen to it because uh, he's got some of the greatest minds and he is one of the great, our greatest minds. Yeah. And he's yeah. also one of these devils, right? Uh, that, that isn't afraid to, to take a side that that's controversial, that could get him into trouble, but he goes where reason sort of Im impels him to go. And, he's fearless. Uh, Steve is fearless and he's a great writer. You know, great writing still makes a difference. And I, yeah. I love seeing that uh, books like Steve's and, 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 mm -hmm. and Richard Dawkins, yep. for example, uh, Steve Gold was a great writer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned about, you know, astronomy books or whatever, you know, when I was in say in high school and college, it seemed like the most popular science books were, were astronomy books. Yeah. Um, and I don't recall there being, you know, any psych books, maybe B.F. Skinner, perhaps he, mm -hmm. he did his Beyond uh, Freedom and Dignity and, and Walden's, uh, yeah, Walden's, no, uh, yeah, Walden's Thoreau. Pond too. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, oh, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had a second one. Anyway, but, but I, I think we're seeing the rise now more of this because people, um, because it, it's becoming more recognizable that the methods of science can be applied to these social questions, political questions, questions of, you know, race and economics and policy and, and, and consciousness. I I mean, you know, the study of consciousness that really didn't even begin to the late 90s. Right. You know, when Francis Crick said it's OK to study the mind, it's like, oh, Francis Crick. Well, he won the Nobel Prize, you know, for his right. work in genetics. So he said it's just OK. So it must be OK. You know, and then, you know, Christoph Clark is collaborator and then Dan Dennett writes books on this. And pretty soon, you know, the study of consciousness is no longer a woo woo thing. It's now right. a scientific. So I think that's happening everywhere. I'm trying to push it into, you know, moral questions. Um, you know, that scientists, uh, science, if, if it can't determine human values, it can certainly inform them and that that has to be okay. And that, that, that you know, as I 
chapter in, in, in giving the devil his due, Mr. Hume, tear down this wall. <laughs> you know, this wall separating is and ought, this so-called naturalistic fallacy, which I think is something of a fallacy. Though technically my philosopher friends, and I'm not a philosopher, tell me I did, I still haven't quite done it. But my point is that, you know, just saying, you know, just punting the ball down the field and saying, well, we scientists, we have nothing to say about morals and values and purpose in life. That's for the theologians. Bullshit. Come on. It's okay for scientists <laughs> to at least have an opinion yeah, and make course. a rational argument and, and put forth some empirical ideas, uh, data right. about it. We should be forbidden to do so, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very good. So I want to, I, I put out on Twitter and Facebook an invitation to uh, fans of the podcast uh, to submit some questions. We don't have too much time, but I did get uh, a couple that I wanted to highlight. Um, so uh, one was by uh, an anonymous listener who wanted to know, um, what is your perspective of kind of the future of skepticism? Uh, looking at videos, this person feels, uh, you know, that you, t you tend to see a lot of uh, white haired, you know, old white men, the dreaded old white men in the <laughs> audience. And yeah. I'm wondering, um, where, where do you see the kind of um, ability of skepticism to sort of transcend demographic bounds? Yeah, that person's probably referring to the so-called skeptic movement, which mm -hmm. you know, sort of officially began um, in the 70s with PSYCOP, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal. Yes. Never the best <laughs> never the best title. Now shortened to uh, CFI, Center for Inquiry. Um, you know, James Randi, um, Paul Kurtz, uh, Ray Hyman, Martin Gardner, you know, all, um, you know, basically responding to the new age movement and pe people right. like Uri Geller bending Uri Geller. spoons and mm -hmm. psychics and astrology and all that mm -hmm. stuff. They were worried about, um, you know, what this was uh, having an effect on education and policy and, and whatnot. And so that was definitely for decades, you know, sort of an old white guys uh, movement, as was so many of these kind of movements at the time. Now things are, are thankfully changing. You see a lot more uh, women at these events and a lot more people of color, although it's still, you know, pretty heavily slanted. Mm -hmm. But but I prefer to not really think of it myself as part of the skeptics movement. I'd rather broaden it. It's sort of scientific humanism or enlightenment humanism. And I don't use secular humanism anymore for, for this reason, because it, it, was, it really began in the 1930s and was very much a, a far left liberal uh, political movement, you know, mm -hmm. for good causes, you know, for, you know, reproductive rights for women and civil rights for minorities and, and all this, all this good stuff. But then yeah. by the eighties and nineties, it became like, well, if you don't tick these 12 boxes of our political beliefs, you're not a humanist. It's like, <laughs> I only tick like half those boxes. You know, I'm socially liberal, but I'm kind of fiscally conservative. And I, it depends. I'm sort of, you know, um, you know, an issues guy, T tell me the issue and I'll tell you, no, 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 this is the whole set. If you don't believe all of them, you're out. And it's like, okay, that's not for me. And All that's nothing thinking. Kind of what happened to the <laughs> skeptics movement and also the atheist movement after uh, Richard's book, 2006, The God Delusion. Mm -hmm. It kind of was a split between the militant atheists and, and sort of moderate atheists or agnostics and skeptics or whatever. And it's like, if you're not militant like like Hit or, or Richard Dawkins, then you're not a true atheist. Like, right. okay, guys, there's not that many of us. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, started kicking people out of the club is not the best strategy, right? Right. Yeah. There's, and uh, I think this happens with all social movements, you know, mm -hmm. that the sort of purification of, you know, who's not towing the line perfectly. I think it's very dangerous. I'd rather go for what I'm calling scientific humanism or enlightenment humanism, just humanism in the broadest sense. Everybody should be practice skepticism. That's yeah. the title of my course, Skepticism 101. But think like a scientist. 
everybody should think like a scientist because yeah. we all want to know what's reliable, valid knowledge that we should embrace and what's not that we should withhold judgment or reject. That 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 question applies to everything. Yeah. I even tell my my you know religious friends and Christians and Muslims and and Jews that you know if you are you know maybe not a scientist you should not fear science you should not oppose science because actually science could lead you to a deepening of your understanding just as steel sharpens steel your your arguments your faith may be strengthened by looking into science so certainly it's, there's no need for you know uh, even the the kind of uh, detente of of non -over overlapping magisteria but but even in the case of actively learning about science not relegating that's you know it's like George Bush was one, George Bush senior was once asked you know like if you took all the deficit dollars and you stacked them up how big would they how long would they travel or something like that and he was like oh don't bother me with i'm not a math guy and no one would ever <laughs> yeah. say like oh don't bother me you know, i'm not a, i'm not a words guy you know i don't right. i don't speak english uh you know i don't understand english or syntax of, of uh, proper proper grammar um but there's sort of this discomfort or it's sometimes a badge of honor i don't understand science you know it's for those wonky eggheads yeah and so i think you know seeking out uh that diversity of viewpoint is so important and it's one of the things you do extremely well um i want to ask a couple more questions so um, <clears throat> one of the uh, listeners uh, asked me your opinions on on the anti-vaccination crowd. Are the, are they devils that should be, you know, listened to in the sense that you know if you don't believe uh, the vaccinations are, uh, if you actually believe the vaccinations are deadly, uh, is that is, or cause autism, for example, mm -hmm. uh, should you be excluded from the marketplace of ideas? Well, no, not excluded in any legal sense. Mm -hmm. No yeah. censorship for anybody, but. Um, it, you know, and the voice of people that were skeptical of vaccines was actually heard in a century ago. Now, there was a great debate in the 1890s and early 1900s about the uh, values of uh, value of vaccinations and mm. legitimate debates, you know, in the 19th century about, you know, how best to do this. Does it really work? Is it really worth the risk and so on? But, you know, as you know, in science, at some point, we, you know, we kind of reach a consensus, a consilience of inductions, a convergence of evidence from multiple lines of inquiry that go, you know what, this is really the best explanation, best theory, the best policy, or whatever, we should go with that. Okay, there's always going to be dissenters. What do you what do you do with them? Well, you don't have to do anything. You just ignore them. Right. The problem is when they when they start influencing uh, the body politic, and you get a lot of people that don't vaccinate, then you reach this herd, you know, you breach the herd immunity and, and all that, mm -hmm. uh, that people are fairly familiar with now. Still, of course, I mean, like this guy um, um, who, who did, did the autisms linked to um, vaccinations, uh, his name is escaping me now, but sorry. Uh, you know, no, I don't think he should be, you know, censored or jailed or anything like that. But, you know, I, I think it requires a, a, a more a stronger voice that we stand up and say, you know, we really, uh, we really need to follow the science, a, right. a Fauci kind of voice, yeah. you know, someone that people really trust, which, which so I think public intellectuals such as yourself and Neil deGrasse Tyson and others, you know, it's important that they speak up and speak tr speak truth to power as they used to say right uh because the, the, you know we live in the age of science and you know uh, you know the fringe voices are okay that's good let's, let's hear what they have to say but, but let's put forth their best argument and then respond and then be done with it okay 
Do you feel like that would lead to, I mean, you've written extensively in the moral arc and elsewhere about, um, you know, the civilizations that are last to adopt, you know, women's rights, uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, right? That those, you know, those are declining. There's very few of those that, that, yeah. that exist. And, and uh, do you think that kind of freedom of speech supersedes all of them? In other words, that, that yeah. if you have that, then it would translate into more wider acceptance in different parts of the world that don't already have those, those freedoms that we now take for granted in the West, at least. Yeah, free speech is, I think, the foundation of all other rights, the mm-hmm. right to, to, to think and, and speak what you want, because that's the only way to find out if, if we're right or wrong about a particular something else mm-hmm. having to do with civil rights and civil liberties. So, and, and we know this because the first thing that autocrats do is they shut down dissenters. They, right. contr- they want to control the press, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and so by their actions, you can tell which, are, which is the most important of all the rights. It's the right to speak. That's the first one they want to squelch. Yes. And the last question uh, from a friend, uh, this is uh, Bernie Taylor, uh, author of a book called Before Orion, a scholar, uh, a naturalist about uh, ancient cave paintings. Hmm. And uh, what he wants to know is, um, is there something you know, deep in the so-called gods of old uh, from really prehistoric times, 36,000 years ago, he says, um, that are projected forward in some sense uh, psychologically? Is there something in the believing brain, uh, hmm. as you would say, that uh, compelled the the worshipers, you know, uh, my ancient tradition, Judaism, and the Judeo-Christian traditions. Is there is there some embedding of this really Paleolithic, you know, um, in, in our Paleolithic minds that carried forward to the to the modern or less uh, ancient to the Bronze Age? Certainly, something had to come along with it because they're us, yeah, <laughs> right. The people that made these cave paintings, uh, they're Homo sapiens. Their brains are pretty much just like ours, mm-hmm. uh, with different cultures. So. Uh, what gets carried forward is probably some foundational structure to cognition that then creates these stories and myths or whatever. You know, I have a chapter in, in Giving the Devil is Due on Graham Hancock, the romance, mm. the, the romance of the past. Um, and your your correspondent there, I, I think, is hinting at that. You know, there's something about the wisdom of the ancient ones, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, and I think there's something to that in as much as, um, you know, certain traditions like your, your own Jewish mm-hmm. tradition, you know, they, you know, they experimented with many different things long ago. And so what we find, some of which may have value. Now you have to test each claim to see which has value, but some of them may. I'll, I'll give you an example. I just had um, uh, Brian Green on my podcast with his yeah. new book. That's right. And, you know, he's an atheist or doesn't believe in God or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when his father died, he said he, he really clinged to the, you know, sort of Jewish tradition of that. Shiva, yeah. Yeah. And, and that, you know, this rabbi and, you know, the traditions they went through and uh, all that, that it made him feel like, well, this is goes back thousands of years. So it feels deeper to me like this is a a, me, a more meaningful tra- transition for my father and and for the rest of us that are still alive that we have that tradition but, and i joke you, you mean like the seinfeld festivus for the rest of us with the metal pole that was <laughs> george's invented, father right that was invented you know last tuesday that's not going to do it it doesn't have no. a sense of it doesn't have that gravitas. cultural gravitas yeah right. so i i do recognize that and and so in the, in the other chapter in the in the book about jordan peterson i uh, mm-hmm. acknowledge the value of myths and stories that yeah. have their own kind of truth. Now, I don't go as far as he does about defining truth that way, but the idea that, you know, novels and ancient religious writings could have, even if they're, whether they're true or not is irrelevant. 
You know, even whether it's, you know, the Noachian flood and the ark or Jesus resurrected, yes. none of it could, it's possible none of it happened, mm-hmm. that they're mythic stories that carry some moral homily or some message about, you know, what, you know, bearing your own cross, you know, forgiving people, starting over, you know, redemption. These are, these are kind of moral truths mm-hmm. in a way that I, I I think have value. Yeah, that stand the test of time, right? Oh, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that about Brian. I mean, I listened to the, to uh, Ola, and I'm hoping to get him on the podcast. You so should, if you yeah. Can reach I, out I, to him. That would be great. I, I will. I will do that because yeah, uh, uh, yeah. He's he's an interesting guy. <laughs> so I want to close uh, with uh, an opportunity I call the uh, the plug zone. If there are things that you want to plug besides this book, so this is coming out uh, uh, April sixth, Tuesday, as as all books do. That's Shermer's first law. Uh, uh, which is uh, which is that books always come out on Tuesdays. It's Actually, called... interestingly, this one comes out on Thursday, April oh. 9th, for some weird reason. Oh, maybe because its original yeah. public the publisher is Cambridge University Press. Yeah, and I went through their London office, so they're in England. So for some reason, in England, the Tuesday rule doesn't apply. It's an oh. American rule or something. Uh, okay, so it's not a universal <laughs> rule. Okay, so plug. The... You know, it's other than the book. You know, just skeptic.com is the web page of my magazine. Michaelshermer.com yeah. is my personal web page, and you know, Amazon it, bookstores are all closed. So you know. Yeah, great, great time to have a nonfiction book. <laughs> uh, but of course, Amazon is still delivering. I, I read this morning they just hired eighty thousand people or something like that. Yeah, that's great. And of course, the local bookstores. You know, we had hoped to have you here. I should say uh, for an event, and we will have you here hopefully uh, in the fall uh, at UCSD. By then, you'll have written three more books, so that'll be nice. Well, and, we'll all be wearing uh, face masks and gloves <laughs> and uh, fist bumping, or you know. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I mean, the virus isn't going to go away just no. because we all go back to work. It's yeah, still exactly. Around. Right. Yeah. It'll still be there. Hopefully we'll have uh, a great breakthrough uh, with my colleagues and, and our friends around the world working so hard on this. It's really an unprecedented time. Uh, so I want to also refer people to the fact that you are, uh, you, you have uh, courses on the great courses, which you can also get through Audible. Now they're a sponsor of the Science Salon podcast, which uh, I tune into all the time. Uh, the book launch, as we said, and this should air before uh, the book actually launches and your Chapman lectures, uh, and everything. Is there anything else that uh, you want to mention, or uh, that I forgot to, or maybe something? <laughs> I, no, I guess that that that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's all good. Great. Uh, it's so much fun talking to you. Great I hope to you see enjoy you again, uh, Santa Barbara uh, weather. Go for a ride. And oh, uh, I've been riding. I've been riding in isolation. There's no more group rides up here. <laughs> the, no more group the, rides anywhere. What do you call that? Peloton. So it's the just Peloton. Really, no, it's no really Peloton. Widely spaced. Yeah. No, those guys they sweat <laughs> and spit, and you know, no, you don't want to be anywhere near a Peloton. <laughs> well, we'll get you here for uh, for a talk in San Diego as soon as we can. And it's all then, uh, everyone out there. Thank you so much for joining. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. For a chance to win a free copy of our most recent guest's newest book, send a screenshot of your review to info at imagine.ucsd.edu. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego in the Division of Physical Sciences. Directed by Eric Veery, Brian Keating, and Patrick Coleman. Produced by Stuart Volgo. For more information, go to imagine.ucsd.edu. Find us on Twitter at ImagineUCSD.edu.